Sixth episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that still stands, as should we all, with the movement to end racial injustice and defund police services in favor of more effective options. We also like fair and free elections, and it would be wonderful if COVID would get the hell out of here. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co host this week is Hot Dad Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. I only posted that photo because you called me hot dead last week, so I felt <laughs> compelled. Uh, for the first time ever, uh, I'm not glad to be here. I'm not looking forward to this. And in fact, I have taken a very rare step to drink alcohol while recording. Because wow. I'm like, if I have to talk about the stupid ass reserve list again tonight, I'm bringing a drink. I am trying out some Pumpkinville Latte Coffee Nitro. Wow. Which is a lot of buzzwords. That That's uh, really going to help with the our stance as trying to position ourselves as non-elitist. Look, man, I've seen the beer you guys have up in Canada. I don't know what it was like two decades ago. But you guys are light years behind America at this point. Wow! I'm not trying to go. I'm not trying to go to bat for America, but the microbrewery scene has just gone in wild up here. Like there are something like 1,200 microbreweries in New York State. Wow, that's impressive, actually. It yeah, it's like it's unbelievable how many there are. Uh, this one's Ellicottville, which is actually um, a really big ski resort. Yep, I've been there in the area. Yep, yep, yep. But. Uh, I like me some pumpkins, I like lattes, I like coffee, and the term nitro is appealing. This is, <laughs> I, I, I will I will say it's probably exceeded my expectations, but I don't think I could drink this if it wasn't nitro. Yeah, fair enough. And it's a uh, paltry 6.5%. Man, I'm getting more sober as I drink it. Um, all right, we're going to share some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what do we got on the agenda this week? Okay, this week we are starting with segment one, our top metagame week in review for Moto. We have the Pioneer Challenge, which is looking a little black. Uh, segment two, our top paper movers. We got decent slate of cards to talk about this week. Uh, definitely some oh man i just stopped stopped and looked at the notes on this really quick but that is a lot of party comments <laughs> that is a, a big force this week uh then our top mtgo movers uh segment three our top paper cards to watch so this is some stuff james and i think has a pretty good future segment four our topic of the week we will talk about some of the latest zendikar rising spoilers as well as uh, the reserve list topic that got drummed up again this week, the uh, Tolarian Academy posted another video, unsurprisingly, full of charitably half-truths. So, uh, and then Dan Bach, one of the, one of, if not the biggest kind of 
probably the biggest named individual who runs a store, I would presume, uh, chimed in with some discussion, which kicked off. So we'll, we'll touch base on that quick. Um, but all right, let's hop in here. Our top MTGO metagame we can review. We have uh, Mono Black Vampires and Aggro in the top two, and then Red Black Kroxa coming in seven and eight. So pretty good week for the color black in Pioneer by the looks of it. We saw this last week too, and it's interesting to me that, first of all, I don't think that the online, the MTGO Pioneer community is all that big. So if you see two mono black decks, one vampires, one aggro, run it back to back week after week, this could be the same players. Didn't uh, they say, uh, weren't they talking a couple weeks ago that they were having trouble firing the events? That was that was a few months back, and I, I don't think a whole lot has changed. Like, obviously, this event went off. Uh, it was a challenge on September 7th, so yesterday, Sunday. Um, but I don't think they're getting hundreds of people for these tournaments. I think it's still sub-100, if I'm not mistaken. The thing is about the black decks, there are two variants. The one that has four Soren, uh, the Planeswalker, that lets you pop vampires into play. And then the mono black aggro version that's running three Rankle. They both use Castle Lockdwain, if I'm not mistaken. If Pioneer was to come back as a paper format, anytime in the next few months, I would imagine these decks would be present. Especially given that the Vampire's deck, especially, is going to be getting fed fresh cards all year long. You know, at minimum from Zendikar and from the Innistrad Vampires set. And I would guess there'll be some Vampires in the D&D set in the summer as well, which is replacing the core set. Oh, yeah. Could easily be some Vampires in the other two sets. Nothing about those themes says otherwise. The Viking set in Kaldheim maybe they if they're leaning heavily into the norse thing maybe no vampires but a vampire or two could easily show up in the like hogwarts ripoff set and yeah i i would imagine that the the vampires deck just gets better and better and some of the pieces will reinforce both versions well vampires are basically evergreen in magic at this point Mm -hmm. i wonder how many sets don't have any at all um you know, in the last three years. But yeah, they will just keep getting fed kind of the same way Merfolk does uh, in formats that matter. Um, yeah, other than that, you've got the, you know, Team of Reclamation, which we've seen around. Oh yeah, there was a white-black Auras too there, although that's not really the same. Um, some blue-black controls with Shark Typhoon again, the same as a Team of Reclamation. And then a Planeswalker control deck down there with, with Yorion, I see, which is kind of amusing after the change. Not only do we have Yorion, but the red-black Croxadex are both running Lurus. So we do have two companions who are not dead in the water yet. And certainly worth keeping your eye on the foil extended art versions of both. Uh, Japan is already pretty bullish on both of these cards. And that could be a signal that the rest of us are supposed to be paying attention as well. Well, if memory serves me, the change they made to companions was that you had the put it in how oh, actually i guess memory doesn't serve me <laughs> you pay three colorless to put it in your hand that's what it is okay so they did add additional mana to it yeah yeah so that's i mean that's gonna be a drag on everybody but even still hmm i guess i would expect that to impact yorion a lot less than Luris. Yeah, I mean, the lower casting cost on Lurus certainly makes it the card least likely to be impacted. I mean, it's still 
gives the aggro players pause whereas without that additional mana requirement change to the companion rules Luris was just popping up literally everywhere because there were so many different decks where there was just zero cost to including him mm-hmm yep I'm just checking actually whether that black white auras deck that's been around since uh Theros beyond death dropped has a lure yeah they're running Luris too actually I just overlooked it in the because uh, it just they were one of the earliest decks to adopt Luris so doesn't really surprise me that it's still showing up there since it's such a perfect fit. Yeah, that and that deck I think probably can end up with surplus mana if it fizzles a little bit. There's been a whole bunch of variants on Planeswalker Control in Pioneer. This Jeskai Planeswalker Control that's in six with the Yorion running four Luka out of Ikoria would be pretty big game if we were not in COVID and it was it popped up in, say, the top eight of a Star City Games tournament one weekend. Might uh, generate a run on Luka, but in the current environment, it just flags it as a card to watch sometime in 2021. Yeah, I, I kind of have that sense that I would be a lot more interested in these results and competitive magic in general if COVID weren't just kind of strangling the paper markets. It's it's interesting to see them and see what's going on. Keep an eye on the metagame, but like I'm just you know I see the four Lucas pop up and it's like yeah okay I'm I'm still not thinking about buying in on these to try and ride a, an upcoming pioneer wave just because it's the wrong time of the year for it. In that meaning, there's still quarantine it's supposed to be a quarantine in place. Worth flagging that this deck is also running four Rogrin Triome. Triomes show up all over the place right now and would probably be pushing pretty hard if paper was a real thing because currently triumph pricing is mostly based on the vague notion that players feel like they're going to need them at some point plus commander where they can be immediately used uh, for people that are playing you know locally with you know friends and family or are playing on webcam or just fooling around building decks which honestly i think is the the bulk of what is keeping magic alive right now is people just tinkering at home uh it's a good thing the hobby's got that to hang its hook on, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. We've got Shark Typhoons all over the place here. The Teamer Reclamation build in third was running for Shark Typhoon. The Blue-Black Control build was probably the most interesting one. This is a whole pile of instants and a few sorceries. And then three Torrential Gear Hulk and four Shark Typhoon as the finishers. Don't recall seeing this particular configuration in uh, Pioneer before. Uh, certainly not in the top eight. It's uh, some fun stuff in there. Fun, some fun stuff. Some fun stuff in there. Oh, um, over in modern, we've got from the pioneer. Uh, sorry, the modern challenge that uh, dropped on September seventh. We've got most a lot of just decks we have seen before. No like huge surprises in this particular mix. I, I'm surprised to see two ad nauseums. We have seen Ad Nauseam a few times in the top eights lately, so I'm not super surprised to see it. I'm a little surprised to see two, just because it always seems like the kind of deck that, for years, could top eight any given weekend as kind of a left field deck. There's always one guy at the LGS that runs the deck and has been running it for ages, and people forget to, don't bother to prepare for it, because they know it's going to be like one out of 30 people in the field. So two in a top eight's a little unusual. If, if, it, if it's good one week, if it's good one weekend, the... If it's good for one copy of Ad Nauseam this weekend, it's good for both copies. Like, if it's a good weekend for Ad Nauseam, then everyone who showed up with Ad Nauseam is going to have a good weekend. 
We've also got so Griggs's Grix, Death Shadow in, in first, a configuration that does not look particularly strange. This kind of you know most of the time we see the the uh, uh, Saltai build or the Jund builds of Death Shadow, but here's the Grixis one coming back to the forefront. There's nothing really in here that's newish. You know, there's no triomes. Creatures are Death Shadows, Gourmet Anglers, Snapcasters, and Street Wraith. Instance, I guess the newest thing going is the Drown and the Lock from Eldraine and two Cling to Dust uh, foils of which I've been pulling out of uh, Collector Booster chaff uh, from the winter because they're showing up all over the place. But other than that, it's you know pretty straightforward stuff. And then you've got two Ad Nauseums, as we said. Sultai Control is running four Uro, three Jace the Mind Sculptor, three Force of Negation. Then you've got the green-red Clothis Ponza deck with three Clothis, uh, four Season Pyromancer, and a Renin Six. The Bant control and the Sultai control seem to both be fully viable in modern right now on the back of running Uros. And it's kind of just a decision as to whether you want to run Jace the Mind Sculptor, it looks like, in the Sultai version, versus uh, three Mana Teferi and five Mana Teferi if you want to play fool around with the Bant version. There's a Primeval Titan deck that has 30 lands, um, three Primeval Titan, four Dryad of the Elysian Grove, and three Eladomri's Call, and then Uro Dredge, two Uro and four Vengevine. Are you getting that feeling that Uro <laughs> is going to catch a ban? I, well, I will tell you this much. I remember if we rewind the tape back to our Theros Beyond Death episode that I was pretty hot on Uro and I don't remember what everyone else thought of it, so I'm not trying to claim that I was alone or that I saw something other people didn't, but I'm feeling vindicated in possibly the worst way possible when I thought Uro was good. <laughs> it's like, yeah, turns out it's good enough. Everywhere. Uh, they printed that hate card for it this week, uh, or in Zendikar. The, not Death's Shadow. It's like the reverse, of, it's like Shadow of Death or something like that. And Ari Lax was like, yeah, this is uh, equivalent to printing... Imami statue in uh, Mirrodin, which is to say it is not going to be enough to stop Uro. <laughs> Card is very, very good. Believe it or not. All right. Let's uh let's move over to segment two, our top paper mover. It's a little more a little more exciting over there. We are starting off the week with Soul Scar Mage, which showed up in a modern prowess deck. Um, from five to seven and a quarter. Uh, so not the biggest spike, but definitely some movement. And I see you've noted the Card Kingdom buy list is up over three dollars, which is a pretty good buy list um, if you bought these, you know, with the four to five dollar range. You're definitely getting close. taking a look here yeah like with the, the buy list being pretty solid at ck over three bucks and that modern prowess deck the uh blue red version uh doing work all over the place although it didn't show up in the top eight this week on online um it's interesting that the paper version is holding nearly seven bucks like who's buying soul scar mage right now how is this card not just getting pushed down by every seller that goes to dump them because they don't need them? Um, you think it's uh, no one wants to buy it, but no one's selling it either? Could be that there's some solid arbitrage going on towards Japan where people are expecting games to get played earlier in paper than here. For, yeah, I mean, it is worth noting that 
we tend to focus most of our considerations on the American market, aside from, you know, when we occasionally tell you to go buy cards in Europe. But pretty much the rest of the world is getting around to normal life. Definitely in that vein. So there, yeah, I mean, we might see some of that if, if there's suddenly a demand for all these cards in parts of Europe and Japan because they're back to the stores, because they can be, but we're not. It's going to be, it's going to look really wonky when certain card prices are going wild. And we're like, why is a competitive staple doubling in price this week? There are no paper events. Well, there are, they're just all overseas. I think it was... Uh, Menguchi was in Italy last weekend playing in like a 140-person modern tournament, I believe. Yeah, I think that's the one I had in mind. I don't picture there being many 140-person tournaments in the U.S. this year. Yeah, not safely. I mean, you saw what happened with the colleges, right? 20,000 cases in two weeks or something? Yeah, I don't doubt it. Do you catch what happened to the Sturgis rally? Are you aware of the Sturgis motorcycle rally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also a disaster. Yeah, twelve billion dollars in uh, healthcare spending because of that event. <laughs> I didn't see that stat, but that's yeah, ridiculous. Twelve billion dollars expected cost is twelve billion dollars because of that. This ridiculous short-term thinking and the the politi- politicizing of something that should have been very straightforward <laughs> acceptance of scientific fact. That's it's America, baby. Mind-boggling. I mean, it's not America. America is not doing well, but it's not just America. Like we are, we are having these arguments with people here in Canada as well, and I'm sure it happens all over the world. And part of it is this consistent exposure to propaganda that is still coming out of Russia and getting pumped through Facebook. Like uh, my partner was just having an argument with some Bulgarian lady last night on one of the like Bulgarian groups here in Toronto. Because she had been exposed to a meme that was circulating that basically represented that COVID was uh, far less deadly than the flu, which is factually untrue. But the meme has extremely broad penetration. And once people have seen it and absorbed it and accepted it as fact and decided that they're going to go, you know, get on the pulpit and tell others you have this cognitive dissonance problem where it's just practically impossible, even when you're showing them the article that talks about the meme and how it's factually inaccurate with we, with study quotes from John Hopkins and commentary from, you know, the lead uh, public health care officials here in our country. And there's we, and they're still telling you that, no, that's all brainwashing. We, we cannot go down this road. <laughs> Fair we enough. Moving on to road. Braid of Fire out of Cold Snap, non-foils 14 to 20. This is on the back of Leyline Tyrant. The new dragon that was revealed uh, for Zendikar Rising, which is a 4-4 four, for four, 4 flying, and you don't lose unspent red mana as steps and phases end. So, of course, Braid of Fire has a cumulative upkeep cost of putting a red mana in your mana pool, which, when it was originally printed, was a made it a terrible, terrible card, because you needed to be able to use it before the end of that phase, or you took damage. There are probably those of you out there that haven't been playing long enough to realize this, but Magic's rules used to include mana burn, which meant that any mana that was in your pool at the end of the phase uh, of your turn literally dealt damage to you. So all of a sudden, when they change that rule, Braid of Fire gets a lot better. And with a card like Leyline Tyrant, even better still, because you're, you, the second ability on it is when Leyline Tyrant dies, you may pay any amount of red mana, 
when you do it deals that much damage to any target so if you build up a whole pile of red mana you get uh, lightning greaves or something on this so people can't get rid of it easily and you know wait a few turns you can knock a player out of the game in one shot the thing about this combo though is that this isn't a commander this isn't a legendary dragon so while the combo is effective I, I i'm not convinced that we're supposed to be chasing braids of fire here no this is terrible i terrible why would you think this is going to be good this is this is you know this reeks of mtg are the reddit mtg finance subreddit sure who saw two cards that work in concert and sort of lacked the context necessary to understand why this Marion may not be good. And went, these look awesome together. Braid of Fire is ancient, has one printing. Like, this is, the price is already okay. Let's buy this up and it'll skyrocket. And just, you know, took a shot. Uh, without, yeah, just they just didn't understand what they were doing. So and, that's my and, guess. And don't, get, and don't get me wrong. People are going to buy one or the other of these cards to play with the partner card. But these two card combos that have no other additional context around them tend to fade from memory fairly quickly. And they will be these, you know, gems that people are rediscovering in YouTube content 6, 12, 18 months down the road. And it'll keep some pressure on both cards. But you really, for a card to be you know, worth chasing. You want it to either be a broad staple that's applicable all over the place. And frankly, Braid of Fire is probably just underplayed. I mean, it just makes free mana <laughs> every turn and makes more and more of it as the game goes on. And there's literally no downside to it at this point. So it's, it should probably be in most red decks. I can, you know, I, I there's there's some nuance to this card because I, I did make a Braid of Fire deck back when Mono Burn still existed. Um, I th- what did I do with it? I, I can't remember what my strategy for it was. It's a... There's there's a lot going on there because it is definitely... On a, there's no downside to it other than it being a card in your deck and taking up space. Um, but a card that adds mana to your mana pool during your upkeep that then goes away at the end of upkeep means you're playing primarily instant speed spells on your turn and a lot of kitchen table decks which are the types of decks that are going to be i would say most interested in the braid of fire leyline tyrant combo aren't like a aren't a heavy red instant deck they want to play with big creatures and cool combos not just a pile of lightning bolts for the most part uh, also this has the additional problem of given that it's a fairly casual combo you're trying to sell 20 dollar combo pieces to these players and like those people you know I, i've been that player before they balk at you know five dollars maybe ten dollars a lot to pay for one card for just a fun little deck of which they own 30 so trying to sell 25 dollar braid of virus to people who are just goofing around with their friends at home is a non-starter so this this has problem written all over it let's see how many braid of fire uh instances are reported on edh rec presently a few thousand would be my guess uh, i would put it at under two thousand uh, yeah yeah like 2300 that's probably low though mm-hmm. like as i said I, I can't think of why most you know most red decks that have ways to use the mana don't but, but that's the thing is you probably don't have a lot of ways to use the mana unless you have a way to bank it 
it can be difficult to make use of it. I would encourage, I would say if you were to go through and look at every EDH deck you have that has red in it, count the number of cards that can clearly make use of that mana, and I bet you, on average, you will come up with like three. Basically, all the commanders that are reported using it are ones that have red activate abilities. So your Perforous, yeah. Bronze-Bloodeds, your Sabira, Tulzidi, Caravanner, yep. your Acroma Angel of Fires, and what have you. Yeah. But I feel like there's probably a lot of other you know, enchantments and artifacts, like your your Basalt Monoliths and so forth, that can where this can do some serious work. Well, sure. If you if you put this in your deck as a mono rock on tapper with like mono ball and basalt models and all that, that's fine. But then you kind of now are building your deck a little bit around braid of fire, and then what happens when you don't draw your braid of fire? Uh, it's just <coughs> whatever. You untap it with manifold key or voltaic key. I mean, you're probably in some kind of red artifact deck at that point. Yeah, and I mean it's it's fine, I suppose, but 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 not broadly applicable is is the valid point. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So Champion's Helm Masterpiece Series uh, foils going from like 40-ish to mid-50s. Uh, another invention on the move. We're seeing these kind of slide one after the other. We're going to be talking about some Ultimate Masters box toppers later. Um, there's some relevance there. It's Premium cards are getting pushed. Uh, the people that have not been financially affected by COVID are sitting around at home with very little to do um, you know, as an ongoing process. And I think e-commerce shopping is up some ridiculous amount this year. Um, a lot of that's been consolidated on major platforms, but smaller platforms like TCG uh, and the various online gaming vendors, Magic and otherwise, have all gotten a piece of that action for sure. And uh, I've certainly seen um, the benefits of, you know, uh, Friday night COVID sales. Uh, throughout the summer uh, in a steady stream of singles that I'm mailing out. It's pretty funny going back and looking at the couple of episodes we ran in April where we didn't dare talk about paper specs because we thought it was so ludicrous uh, to do so with where things might be headed. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, what else are we supposed to do? I, I, don't, I don't regret really that coverage because no one knew what was going on, us included, and we're like, I, I don't know. Seems responsible here. Yeah, seemed responsible. Um, all right, so a whole bunch of revised cards under pressure this week. We got Copy Artifact going from 60 to 88, playable reserve list card. You've got Fast Bond going from 15 to 28 on TCG Player, playable reserve list card. Brain Geyser going 11 to 28, another playable reserve list card. And this is just, this to me does not smell at all like natural pressure. This smells like whatever underlying level of sales is usually associated with these cards then add on the speculators and vendors smelling blood in the water all summer long because it's hard to get your hands on this stuff uh, via buy listing at present, period, just any card, but especially cards that don't show up in a lot of the younger collections. You know, like players that started anywhere in the last 10 years probably have little to no revised sitting around in their collections. So even if they are sending something in as a package to Cool Stuff Inc. or Channel Fireball or Card Kingdom or Abu, um, you know, these cards are just have a lower flow. The the dudes that have had stuff like this sitting around in their binders for ages and like pop into a booth and sit down with DJ and dump, dump a bunch of stuff in his lap don't have the same opportunities to do that. So... You know, the, we've seen card after card after card after card be under pressure. Um, 
and I'm not surprised by any of it. Um, a lot of us who just are randomly holding this stuff are, are certainly in a position to benefit, so I'm not complaining about it. But it's important, I think, as a, as a player deciding whether to rush out and buy a copy artifact, you can probably take your time. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, with reserve list cards, the, the right time, the, the best time to buy it was always yesterday, and the next best time is probably today. But that's not entirely be true. Well, it's true on a long period. But we do tend yeah. to, when this stuff gets pushed up hard, we do, when the focus shifts, you often see retracing as people go, oh, wow, Brain Geyser's up to whatever 30 or 40 bucks i i've got a couple of those sitting around and they go check tcg player ebay and then they list them a couple bucks lower than the last guy and if more of that goes on than the people that originally targeted them as specs or inventory doubling down then you're going to see some retracing um so i'm not in a rush to grab any of this reserve list stuff that has been popping up lately i would want to sit back and see where things go especially with things like copy artifact where it's a relatively unique effect, but not really. There are a whole... Wizards has printed a whole bunch of different ways to copy creatures and artifacts and enchantments and whatever. And, you know, if you're looking for a copy of this to throw into your EDH deck, you can probably use a substitute um, most of the time with very little penalty. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Um, okay. Uh, ooh, Emrakul, the Promised End. Nice foils from 80 to 125 that's a big jump uh only the one printing so far how are those non-foils looking i have I'm... sold one of these recently what did i get for it non-foils are at 30 bucks i'm guessing i got probably something like a hundred i'm guessing it's the kind of thing i would have posted for like a 98 88 or something do i still have a bunch of these i really want to get up and go look now yeah, it looks like I sold my last one for 80 bucks, and somebody was offering me like 120 on a Russian foil version, and I turned them down. I I want to say, I remember you and I... It's been, it's been a spec on this cast, for sure. Yeah, and I remember buying it back when it was still legal and standard, like just sending stuff in for store for store credit on buy list and just shoveling into emeralds and then it got banned like a couple weeks later and one particular individual was laughing at us and we were like yeah, but it was the right call at the time i have to go look and see if i have any of those that's exciting i want to say that we called this maybe two years ago around 30 dollars, something like that uh sounds roughly familiar i don't remember it's been so long yeah that sounds about right. It looks like I've got buy list orders that were in a year and a bit ago. Sold a couple copies every few months in the foils. Sent CK some non-foil copies last winter, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, this has been on a, a steady march up. And if it shows up in the in the list, uh, in the oh, yeah, Zendikar set boosters, that. or it shows up randomly in Commander Legends then that first reprint is due. It could be anywhere. It could be this fall or it could be next year. Um, it could show up in Modern Horizons 2 next summer. That would be a reasonable place for it. The, you know, I think the, the time to sell this card is now. Like, this, is, this is your peak season. Get out while you can. 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah. I mean, if it's not in list, you're probably clear for another year at least. I don't know where else you'd see it. But I don't know if you're if you're getting traction on the sales right now. I would probably take it just because if people are interested in buying it today, I'm gonna probably try and take them up on it. Yep, I, I try to get it in my. I think I the only one I'm holding now is a Russian copy and. Try to get somewhere closer to 140 or 150 on it. Hmm. I'm going to have to go digging. Um, okay. Outlaws merriment out of uh, the Eldrain. Uh, what are we talking about? The borderless here? Did this have the borderless one? Yeah, this is. Yes, it did have the borderless This is the one. extended art uh, yeah, foil. 10 to, to, yeah, borderless foil from 10 to 17 based on party hype because it makes warriors clerics and rogues whichever one you want at the start of your upkeep yeah um i i i just who obviously this card was designed with party in mind uh but i don't i i don't see it i don't see it i really think all these party specs are if you're playing them if you're buying them for competitive they're bad (laughs) And if you're buying them for EDH, you don't want to form on enchantment that makes a one-two creature every upkeep, each one of your upkeeps. Like, that's miserable. Here's the thing. This card being targeted now probably requires a longer-term hold. There's only eight listings left on TCG. They're all clustered between $15 and $17. Anybody that got in close to $3, 4 $5 as this kicked off, probably can get out now just fine. Like flip a copy here or there for 14 or 15, you're going to do just fine. And the potential pump for these up to say 20 to 30 is probably further down the road when we get to the D&D set next summer. Because I would imagine that they're going to expand the number of classes. Like it might not be the same four that are represented in Zendikar. It could be different ones or the four plus four more. Because they... They're missing some obvious stuff like bard and wizard and and whatever that are D D mainstays, druid, etc. Um, this card only really helps with warriors, clerics, and rogues. But and and the other big point is that we didn't really get an amazing party commander. There isn't, you know, a, a commander revealed for Zendikar Rising that jumps out at me as being the thing that's going to make you try to pull together a party deck even though there are a bunch of stuff like this that could slot into the deck if it's in the right colors. And and there's a couple and there's a couple of legendary creatures that are for instance like Zagras Thief of Heartbeats as a vampire rogue in black red. You've got Kaza Royal Chaser as a human wizard in blue red. You've got Linvala Shield of Seagate as an angel wizard. Um Akiri, Fearless Voyager, is a core warrior. Aura, Skyclave, Hierophant, which is the box topper for Zendikar Rising, is a core cleric. They're definitely, like, seeding cards to be played, but I'm not seeing the, like, five-color or four-color party uh, legendary creature that's going to pull this whole thing together. I would expect to see it when we get to the D&D set. I'll be very surprised if there's not either a colorless or four to five color, you know, take advantage of party mechanics card by next summer. 
Well, yeah, I don't know if we're going to see it in this set, but I can't fathom that we wouldn't see it in next year's D&D set. Maybe like they do with, um, what's his name? The King from Eldraine, who's white but has activated car colors, all activated colors. They do it with, uh, what's her name, the ally check as well, who, you know, her, her casting cost is one color, but her commander identity is five colors. So you can play them all. If Wizards has any sense at all, whoever their party commander is, they will make some secret layer that's like real world identities and they will make alternate art versions of some of these cards with real world people who I don't want to say inspire that character type, but like here's our, you know, rogue, which is, I don't know. I don't have a good example, but what they should do is make the party commander an all art with Andrew WK. That's a free idea for wizards to use. It's all you. <laughs> Andrew WK party commander. And I expect Eric Klug to have drawn one by the end of next year. I would imagine that they're much more likely to give us something like Matt Mercer as dungeon master. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Is that the critical role? One of the yeah, critical role guys. That's the critical yeah. Role, and that's, yeah. that's kind of what I'm picturing in my head is some sort of tie in like that. Because got all these like, there's all these cards in here like Stonework Pack Beast is a common two one. It's also a cleric, rogue, warrior, and wizard, and it's got a mana filtering ability tacked onto it. So they're they're giving us a bunch of puzzle pieces. There's got to be a payoff at some point here. Uh, the payoff is they get to sell a bunch of terrible cards to casual D and D players. <laughs> the D and D set could be real sweet. Keep in mind that D&D's lore is arguably deeper and more developed than Magic's, given the sheer volume of narrative that's been churned out over the last 30 years. And <laughs> I don't doubt that whatsoever, but how much of it is extremely X-rated <laughs> <laughs> uh, by, by, by dungeon masters that are way too into it? Um, I mean, I... I don't have exposure to that side of the hobby, <laughs> but, I, I, but I'm sure it's out there. Uh, you chose the word exposure for a reason. I suppose. <laughs> All right. So what else is on the move here in paper? We've got uh, a couple other things that are being moved by the party hype. Mere entity foils out of Modern Masters 2015 going from 10 to $20 because... Uh, it gives a boost to all of your creatures till the end of the turn and makes them all creature types. So if you have four creatures in play, one of them is Mirror Entity, then you have a full party and you would start to get ben- benefit. And I think the Mirror Entity spec is actually pretty solid if we get the payoffs at some point within the year and we don't get another, like Mirror Entity doesn't catch a reprint anywhere. Because assuming that it is at least going to you're going you're going to be able to play white cards in the party payoff commander which i I have to imagine will be the case they could go with something like a morophon like style like a colorless creature that you know counts as all the the all party like all uh class types at the same time and and counts as all colors or something and then Mirror Entity will be a card that everybody will want in every version of the deck just because it works so easily to repair your not having party status. <laughs> when you build your whole deck around it, you're going to need lots of help to make sure that you keep it. So um, some of the stuff could be early on party, but doesn't make, necessarily make it wrong. 
Pillage foil from 7th edition going from, in theory, $40 to $100. There's a, at least a couple of LP copies still sitting around under $35. Um, I'm ha- I happily have a foil 7th pillage sitting around that I snapped off in Japan, I think, in May of 2019 that I got for $17. So if I can unload that for anything north of $40, i will be plenty happy. Um, and I imagine it won't be too tough, given that I think pillage is seeing constant play in that Clothis deck in modern, right? Uh, yeah, they have a couple options, but it might be Pillage. Yeah, they run three Pillage. So okay. it's got, I mean, you've got a, you got a consistently ranking modern deck that runs the card. If we ever get back to paper, that might be a, a meaningful thing. Uh, and then we've got a whole bunch of uh, party hype cards that are related to clerics. So we've got Starlit Sanctum Foils from Onslaught going from 7 to 16. We've got Rotlung Reanimator going from 7 to 22. We've got Edgewalkers going from, in non-foil, going from a dollar to $7 for like 600% gains. This is all just foil, old-school cleric hype. Um, you know, these cards haven't caught reprints in ages, and if they don't catch a reprint this year and the party thing pays off, then people will buy the cards. People have been reporting in our ProTrader Discord already flipping through some of this, so whether or not it's right. <laughs> Sometimes if you move fast enough through the hype, it doesn't matter whether the payoff appears. Yeah, and I've mentioned that before, that a spec doesn't have to be, I'm going to say good, or correct. to be yeah. successful. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you just have to be, if you're really fast, you can get ahead of it. Uh, but you have to be right at the cusp of it. Biggest mover this week in theory something like a chroma angel of wrath out of legions foils going from 14 to 150 if you think someone's going to pay that i mean this card has a bunch of other printings uh including being in the time spiral time shifted sheet unclear to me whether the new time shifted sheet in the new time spiral remastered is going to include this card or just be a whole bunch of other different cards um have to double check whether they've revealed that or not but if I could get anything north of 60, 80, 90, whatever, for the original printing of this card, I'd be perfectly satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. All these are, I have to go back and find my, I'm angry at Jason alt box. You, you figure you have some of these clerics sitting around? Oh, I a hundred percent do. I just don't remember which ones I have and I haven't had time to go dig them out yet, but I'm going to. Fair, fair. All right, moving on quickly to the top uh, Magic Online movers of the week. we got Cavern of Souls, probably driven by some party hype uh, and a focus on tribal uh, mechanics in general uh, coming out of Zendikar Rising. Going from like 20 to 23, not a big deal, 15% gains on Magic Online. To Fairy Time Raveler promo, uh, I don't know, is this the stained glass version? Not 100%. Mm. I'd have to go back and check. I don't think so. It didn't look like it, but I could have been misunderstanding the... Because I, I can't think of what other promo version exists for that card on Magic Online. Anyway, from 41 to 48 for 17% gains. Dread, Dreadhorde Arcanist at a War of the Spark moved from 1450 to 1750. Up three tickets, uh, probably on the back of its presence as a four of in the black-red Croxa builds uh, that we see over in Pioneer, where it is a uh, consistent four of. Card had a lot of hype when it came out and was sort of forgotten and has kind of like edged its way into top eight since then. Uh, on the other hand, everybody's aware that Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath is a monstrous creature. 17 to 23, 50, 38% gains. I'm worried this card's going to catch a ban. 
Field of the Dead out of M20, 16 to 23, 40%, 44% gains or so. That's probably on the back of usage in Modern Titan. Pretty sure Field of the Dead is banned in Pioneer. Outlaws Merriman also moved online from 30 cents to 72 cents. It definitely would be selling <laughs> uh, 140% gain on that penny stock. Rick's Matty oh, yeah. Reveler shows up in the Crocs, Black Red Croxadex and Pioneer. Going, went from 11 cents to 31 um, 180% gains. That's the kind of stuff where if you're you know, buying up multiple copies of multiple specs at once, it can really pay off. But it doesn't usually make sense to be over focused on figuring out if your 40 cent spec is going to turn into a dollar twenty. And then Thieves Guild Enforcer out of M21 uh, got some party hype because I believe it's a rogue. So going from 30, 13 cents to 85 cents for 500% plus gains. If you just happen to scoop up 12 copies of that, you flip them into your next uh, exit to the uh, goat bots bot or whatever and uh, roll on through to your next spec. Would be. So those are some pretty nice pickups. All right. So let's move on to uh, segment three, our paper cards to watch this week. Um, I've got a first one that I think has been a little bit overlooked. Tail's End from M20 is in something like 4,000 EDH rec decks and has just broad applications. This card is a counter spell that for one and a blue counters an activated ability, a triggered ability, or a legendary spell, which of course includes everybody's commanders. And so it's the kind of open-ended useful utility that is going to make sense in all sorts of blue decks. And you don't really have to think too hard about the card other than to note that even though M20 was the first time we saw the elevated foil drop rate, we have seen even foil uncommons from that set do reasonably well. Things like uh, Noxious Grasp, for instance. So I think Tail's End is set up with a relatively steep ramp, relatively low inventory, and I could easily see within, say, the next 12 months on the back of Commander Play alone going from $3 to $10 in foil. Well, I'm glad that you're pointing out that post M20 foils can still be successful because I'm going to be banking on that in a couple minutes here. Um, Tail's End is definitely one of those cards that sneaks up on you. Uh, I would guess it's probably a little longer than a year, honestly. Um, but I do think it's the type of card that you're, you could never, you could see 10 years without a reprint on something like this, like these kind of weird little side cards, um, that, you know, they don't sell a ton of copies every year, but they, they do sell them and you get, you know, three years two to three years behind you and suddenly they're just a lot fewer on the market and those prices are creeping up and players are still interested. So uh, yeah, I think it's going to be not the most liquid card in the list, but definitely something that's going to keep selling copies every year as the price ticks up. Arcane Adaptation. Arcane Adaptation is the card from Ixalan, which is the one that basically makes all your creatures a specific creature type. Um, you heard me slur creature type there because of this 6.5% beer. Um, it is, is popular in Yuriko, the ninja commander who popped up this week. Um, I don't expect Yuriko to hold for too much longer with the slate of Zendikar commanders on the horizon, but still has been doing okay over the last several months. People are going to keep going back to that. Well, 
um, as well, I expect. But the foil arcane adaptions out of Ixalan are around three bucks right now. Um, there's a couple at three, three-ish, and then they jump up into four. The ramp on this is actually quite steep. We're down to about 30 vendors for the foils. Uh, the pre-release foils are already at eight dollars. And these creature type enchantments have been popular in the past. And every time something that comes up has creature type relevancy, it sees a bit of a spike. I don't expect this to be a rapid improvement in price. Um, and again, this is the type of card that I would not buy more than maybe a playset or two. Uh, but I do like these, the foils from three to eight or so. What's the buy list support like on it so far? Buy list at Card Kingdom's a dollar, but their buy list on the promo version, the pre-list version, was like three or four. Now that one's at eight dollars. Um, so the buy list isn't quite behind it at the moment, but it's the type of card that I think, I feel like it's roughly in the same ballpark as Tails End. I think that you don't have to sell a lot of copies every month, but I do think that it's the type of card that's going to see a consistent drain. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. It was completely off my radar, but it doesn't seem unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's your next one? All right, so my next one is Torbran Thane of Red Fell, and I'm talking about the uh, Throne of Eldraine extended art foils. You can still pick them up, uh, specifically in Europe, around $20, and I think that these are going to hit 45 or 50 in the next three to six months on the back of being in 6,000 or so EDH rec decks, uh, 1,500 more as a commander. It's got a steep ramp, low inventory, practically zero reprint potential. I mean, this this set is only in its first year in standard. It's got a whole other year. So uh, I think Tor brand copies could easily show up in something like a Challenger deck if Wizards even chooses to reprint those in the spring. You know, it's the kind of thing that just works in a, in a random... Uh, kitchen table red deck pretty well so it might see additional ancillary printings somewhere here but they're not going to be the extended art foils so that's going to get a nice chunk of time to mature and because this thing uh, pumps up the amount of red damage output out of your deck it's just going to keep finding a home alongside things like uh, furnace of wrath and fiery emancipation etc that you know it could be three, four, five plus years before this thing sees another premium printing because it's so specific to the characters of Eldraine. I mean, again, this is, a, a, you know, for buying out of Europe, such a strong play because there's not, you don't have to, you don't have to do that much thinking on them. 6K EDH decks is very solid. Um, and that's a, a good number for a commander play as well. Um, the the reprint you're not getting the reprint most likely. Um, I don't see that as a, as a venue. Um, so obviously there's some demand here and $20 for foil borderless cards is generally going to sound good across the board and you're getting a good buy-in elsewhere. Uh, it's a, basically a better furnace of wrath. I'm, I'm on board. I think this is pretty solid looking. And if you don't, and for people that don't under, don't recall Throne of Eldraine has the lowest print run of any of the collector boosters because it was the first time out of the gates where they were testing it out. So this is already down to like 11 results on TCG player. You can get copies between 30 and 35. By the time this cast hits the public, they're probably going to be closer to 40 to 45 in the U S and I, I honestly, I think any 
you know, I'm calling here 20 to 45 because I think that's a slam dunk. But realistically speaking, these could easily be 50 or 60 long before they see a reprint. So even the 30 to $40 copies in the U.S. currently are not a bad deal, I don't think. Okay. Okay. Sure. All sounds good to me. All right. Uh, your next pick here? Uh, a card that I'm positive has probably popped up on here in some capacity or other, but has newfound application, which is Dryad of the Ilzian Grove. Um, so looking at foils here, both the pack foils out of Theros Beyond Death, as well as the extended arts. I'm a little less excited about the extended arts, but I think they're still probably in both in good shape. You're buying the pack foils at 11 and the extended art foils at about 40. I think that you can probably get out at roughly 20 or so on the pack foils and maybe even 70 on the extended arts. This is in 12,000 decks already. And Dry of the Ilzing Grove, remember, is a landfall guy. So he's going to see a big boost between now and the end of the year and everyone who gets on the Omnath train. I do think Omnath is going to be um, very popular and some early numbers that uh, Jason pulled out in his article, I think today or yesterday, showed that Omnath is heads and shoulders ahead of all the other legendary creatures in terms of popularity. The, the pack foils here are really interesting because a pack non-foil dried of the Ilzian Grove is like 9 to $10 and a pack foil is 11 So there's almost no gap. And generally that means that the foils move um, rather than the non-foils falling back. And then the extended art foils are the coolest version of the card and will be for a while. 40 is kind of high, but I do see this card being very popular and staying very popular for a long time with probably no competing reprint at least with the with the foil borderless and it's one of the uh what's the word i'm looking for that's both an enchantment and creature and the term escapes me at the moment but uh it's got that cool treatment to it so i don't think it's unreasonable to see extended art foils at probably 70 bucks maybe a year-ish from now maybe not even six months possibly I feel like this must have been on, on our list early on. Yeah. Looks like back on episode 216, which was April 21st of this year, was the last time we called this. I had it at 6 to 12 months to go 38 to 60. Uh, and it has more or less just kind of held steady, right? So you're just, call it, you know, six months later, it's still in and around the high 30s. But there's significantly less copies left in the pool and it's starting to hollow out and turn the corner. So I, I, I think the 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 key here is that we're walking into a landfall set, and you're getting a very popular landfall commander. I expect, which is going to put some a lot of sudden additional pressure on the card. So I think it was good when you picked it, and I think it's it's even better today. Yep, because it's we're just the hold the early hold time is you know, is value EV bleed, ROI bleed from getting in earlier because you can still get at the same price months later. Um, but now we are, either way, <laughs> buying the foil extended arts in 2020 is just a smart move before they get much higher because 17 results left, nobody's got a brick. It's all just onesie twosie copies. Um, and this shows up, this is a perennial commander card. Again, this treatment is going to be safe for years, 
you know this this card could is is just like Torbrand could easily show up in ancillary printings, but is very unlikely to catch a premium printing for a while, and it's got a combination of modern and commander play, and probably starts showing up in Pioneer at some point as well. Because if you can play it in modern, it just needs the right pieces of the puzzle to be playable, to be viable in Pioneer. Yeah, I, I, I'm not even banking on it being a modern card or pioneer or modern card, but I accept, believe that that is possible. Like that, you could get some additional angle out of it. That just wasn't a selling point for me at the moment. It didn't need to be. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, what do you got for us? So my last pick of the week is temporal manipulation, and I'm looking at. The Judge Foil specifically, but it's also worth looking at the UMA Box Topper. This is another call to get max value by picking these up in Europe. You can grab uh, the Temporal Manipulations at Judge Foils at 25, and I'm targeting them for an exit at about 50. On the back of the fact that because we've had both a UMA Box Topper and a Judge Foil in the last couple of years... It's probably an unlikely, un, like a lower priority imminent reprint for Wizards. Doesn't mean it won't show up in, say, Commander Legends, but you know, no greater chance there than for anything else. And it's a quad blue card, and Commander Legends looks like it's going to have some pretty hefty color requirements, given like seventy plus Legends or whatever. So very much doubt that they're going to want quad pip uh, spells in that set. And if it's also not in the list, and we know it doesn't really make sense for it to show up in any of the other products that have been announced for the next year, uh, these could easily get up into the $40 or $50 range. You can currently get uh, temporal manipulations in Europe closer to that $23, $24, $25 US once you do conversion and shipping. And if you're stuck picking them up in the US, you're looking at very low listings now on the judge promos. A few copies near 30 that are worth uh, uh, picking off. And then over in the Ultimate Masters box toppers, they're starting at like 45 right now, heading up to probably 50, 60, 70 by the time these drain out. One of the interesting narratives here is that is a discussion that people had in the Pro Trader Discord around planning for the vips like was it did it make any sense to go after vips at the 85 dollar per booster price that we had available to the pro trader discord when most of the world was paying a hundred ish 100 to 110 per booster um in the u.s some people were worried about you know by looking at what happened to the ultimate masters box toppers where if you look at the graph for them on any of the index sites and check how they did as an entire like subset of cards they tended to start high and drift generally downward for the next year and a half and people were worried that if you didn't get out of the vip cards really quickly you were going to see that same trend and that's something we're still you know wondering about and and trying to get a handle on how it's going to play out. So far, the foil uh, VIP uh, box toppers have held relatively steady. There, there was some a kind of a hard pump uh, early on, and then it retraced a little bit, and then that mild retracing has become more or less a fairly steady zone. But what we're seeing with the Ultimate Masters box toppers is even if they drifted down over time, I would largely attribute that to being priced correctly out of the gate or priced high out of the gate and that the 
you know, the step downs that came after were the market shifting focus to other things. And, you know, without the spotlight, the, the cards are drifting back down to a more natural equilibrium. However, you know, two years later, because I think that was a fall 2018 product, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was November or December 2018 that that all came out. Um, we saw, we're now seeing that quite a few of those box toppers are starting to hollow out, especially if we're talking about the top tier competitive staples or especially the commander related cards. So for instance, Cavern of Souls, which just got uh, announced as an Expedi Expedition 2 um, printing, only has 8 listings for the Ultimate Masters box toppers. Liliana of the Veil has 15 listings. The Ultimate Masters box topper Mana Vault we saw pumping on our uh, top movers list a couple weeks ago, and it's got 10 listings. Urborg is down to 13 listings. Demonic Tutors at 19 listings. Kozilek Butcher of Truth has 10 listings. Uh, Ancient Tomb, which also does, is getting a reprint here, uh, 11 listings. Ulamog the Infinite uh, Gyre at 10 listings. Dark Depths at 29. Eternal Witness at 24. Machaeus the Unhallowed at 8. All of which says that, you know, even if they drifted down, they look like they're set for a rebound. And a lot of these cards have been pumping lately. So that's, a, that's an encouraging sign for people that have put money into, say, VIP foil uh foil box toppers extended arts or borderless cards and that are considering what to do about these zendikar rising expeditions when they hit their you know local lows at peak supply seems like reasonable places to park money i mean on a mid-term horizon for sure that's not as exciting as you know flipping bricks to buy lists repetitively from europe to card kingdom or whatever but i don't think any you know collectors or players are going to be complaining about these premiums, these premium versions that are hard to reprint within the kind of reasonable timeline of that like year to three years that it might take for them to mature. You just kind of want to choose your entry point. And it's a really good um, thing that we've got the Expedition 2 series now because we can see, start to measure how that impacts some of the overlap with Expedition 1s, for instance. Uh, the only thing I'm a little curious about here is you said temporal manipulation was a quad blue pip, but I don't believe that is true. Unless you were referring to a different card and you wrote temporal manipulation. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's a three double blue. Yeah. My bad, my bad. I, I'm thinking about one of the other time walk cards. Yeah, ultimately, I don't think that's particularly relevant in the grand scheme of the conversation here. Um, and it sounds like you did a lot of research on uh, the price trajectories involved. Uh, and I'm always on board for time walk effects. They are traditionally um, do quite well, especially for any sort of uh, unconditional time walk, which is what this is. So uh, in general, you're not, you don't have to try very hard to sell me on time walks. Yep, fair enough. Okay, so I guess you have one more for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, popping around, I... Caught this. This caught my attention too. Um, Azusa, Lost But Seeking. Slightly cooler on this than the other two, but I still think worth uh, talking about. The M21 pack foils are at 18. Uh, and the extended art foils are at 22. Did I write that down correctly? Let me verify that that is accurate. Uh, 
Now I have to find this again. I am pretty sure that is accurate. Azusa, I wish TCG play. Yeah, two po extended art foils from M21 are $22. I really wish TCG player recognized that these extended art cards were still in the set. Like you go to Azusa and then you click on see other printings and it doesn't pull up the extended arts, which is really annoying. Uh, it may be cause for lost sales, but in any case, the pack foils are eight and the extended art foils are 22. I like the pack foils up to probably about 16, so a double up, and I think the extended art foils could hit 50 or even more. Now, Azusa is very popular in EDH. She's got 14,000 EDH rock kits, which is, is very solid. Um, now, there are other foils. There are actually several foils for Azusa compared to where we were like four years ago, where there were zero other than Champions of Kamigawa. However, Every other foil of, of Azusa is over $17 at this point. The most recent was Magic uh, Masters 25, which was about two years ago now. Um, but they have all continued to climb. Pack foils, by the way, are like $140. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But I do think despite a very healthy supply on the M21 foils, I do think that these will slowly drain. Uh, and creep back up towards a $15 to $16 range. I think everyone who plays EDH is going to want at least one or two of these uh, over time. And if they didn't, if they missed it two years ago, now's a good chance. And again, landfall set. The extended arts in particular, I'm excited about because if they do reprint it again in the future, if it's in a venue that doesn't have, or in, in, in a medium that doesn't, uh, medium's not the right word either. If it's in a product that doesn't have a, it included as a pr premium card with special border treatment. The extended art will remain essentially the best treatment of the card. Um, and $22 for a foil extended art Azusa just seems silly to me. So I'm real excited for that to hit 40, 50, possibly even more just because that could, uh, that's a very popular card and far and away the coolest printing of it. I definitely love the extended art foil here. I think. 22 is your peak supply low there's a ramp building up from that pretty strongly uh we, we do have 38 listings combines for maybe a, a mm -hmm. hundred copies or so maybe a couple hundred between most of the major vendors online in the u.s but that's nothing for this card i mean it is a perennial staple in modern it's got long legs in EDH, and we're getting tons of Lands Matters cards where people are going to be wanting to pick up the best version of this that's, you know, existed. There is the Judge promo version of the card as well to contend with, but I don't think that's a huge deal here. Um, the This is just going to get there. Like, six months, 12 months could be a little longer, but very surprised if these don't end up making people easy money. Yeah, so we'll see how it goes, but I definitely like the extended art foils, especially. The, the here. judge promo version is basically between forty and sixty on eighteen results on TCG Player, so there's not really much to contend with, given that they use the same art and the extended art is a better looking card overall, given the borderless treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, you got one more for us. Uh, so this one's not mine. This is our user pick of the week. Uh, we have user Powell, who's one of our European users, um, calling out, and I've got three of four picks here related to EU for best sourcing, and including, uh, or two of three of mine, and Powell's as well. Uh, he's calling out uh, another Ultimate Masters box, box topper, Balefire Dragon, uh, is 
a card that some people might not be familiar with if they haven't actually played it in Commander, but it's in like 8,000 plus reported decks on EDH Rec. And the box topper is down to something like six or eight listings on TCG Player, and it's showing a pretty steep curve up into $50, $60 range. You can still get copies in Europe closer to $30. Um, regular copies of the card from Ultimate Masters are up to $17. Bucks. Um, so if you crack a couple of those and just put them aside, you might be wanting to consider selling them sometime soon. This is a card that could show up in a, you know, a set like Commander Legends for sure. It could show, uh, it's been two years since its last printing. It could show up in the list. It could show up in some Mystery Booster Part 2 product next year that we don't know about yet. I like getting in on these pretty quick here and getting out again pretty soon um, to not uh, roll those reprint dice for too long. But this one seems like a no-brainer to me. I, I see no reason why you won't be able to unload these for plus $10, $15 a copy off 30 bucks entry. Seems reasonable enough. I don't dislike it. So uh, $25 gift certificate to Powell. I know that's his first, so congrats to him. It's exciting. And, and uh, you know, spend that well over at CoolStuffInc.com so that we continue to get those fine promos from our sponsor. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's see which are we hitting first here. We'll do the spoilers, right? Is what you said you wanted to cover? Yeah, let's take a look at some of the big reveals from Zendikar Rising. When we last left this narrative last week, we'd seen some cool cards, but it people were there was a lot of chatter in the Pro Trader Discord and on social media from people who were saying, ah, they hollowed out this set, they dialed back the power level. This isn't really. You know, they're, they're hanging their hat on the Expeditions. They know that's going to sell the set, so we're not going to get anything else good. They kind of, you know, the early stuff they showed us wasn't that exciting for Commander. <laughs> early, early analysis looking pretty weak in the face of the cards that have been unveiled over the, the last few days. There are now at least three Mythics that have debuted... Um, in the last 48 hours or so that have us all wondering in the pro trader discord which of these is the great hinge which of these is going to get down to ten dollars and a year from now be sitting at 25 to 30 and i would i would pro offer that these are the can current candidates we've got forsaken monument five casting costs legendary artifact colorless creatures you control get plus two plus two Starting strong. Whenever you tap a permanent for colorless, add an additional colorless. So Ancient Tomb makes three mana. Basalt Monolith goes infinite because it makes uh, four mana and untaps for three. Um, you have Wastes being a du uh, making two mana now with no pain. So it's basically a painless Ancient Tomb. And <laughs> On turn five. <laughs> sure, but still fantastic ramp. Uh, in the deck where you're going to be playing this and then whenever you cast a colorless spell you gain two life so you've got a little bit of life padding which is always useful in edh especially if you've got a way to say bounce some colorless stuff and put it back down on the table again this is a mirari's wake kind of card that is going to fit in more decks than people realize because you don't necessarily need to be running a colorless commander to make this work you just need to have a bunch of colorless mana rocks and or some colorless lands thrown into your deck and then have a way to make colorless tokens out of a colored deck 
and there's going to be more opportunities to do that than I think people are, are fully aware of. I, I'm, I'm not quite in line here. I, you know, colorless creatures are very specific. Artifact creatures are obviously the, um, your bread and butter, but unless you're going out of your way to build the deck with colorless creatures, I think most commander decks, and I presume we're talking about commander here, most commander decks only have a couple and they're probably stuff like Solemn Simulacrum or more utility-based creatures. So I don't see it being too relevant. The colorless spell, the gaining life on the colorless spells is also not the biggest deal in a non-dedicated deck. Um, enough so that I think you can probably just write that off almost entirely. So it comes down to the whether you're tapping the permanent for the additional mana. That could be very good. And if you tool your mana base in a way that you know you're going to use it. For instance, if you have the the pain lands like um, Land of War Waste, which is green, black, or colorless, uh, it certainly helps. But I, I uh, this seems like it might be a, just a little too narrow outside of decks that aren't dedicated to warrant a slot. What do you put the price of this card at in 12 months? Uh, I don't know what it costs today, but in 12 well, months... Yeah, ignore whatever the silly pre-order pricing is, which I'm sure is much cheaper in Europe. Six, seven? Interesting. I think there's demand. I just don't see this as being any... I like. I think that artifact from the last set that was the like tap for four mana and also had the activated ability to draw seven cards was much more appealing, I think. So I think that this card is probably my last choice out of the available mythics, but I still think that 6-7 could be right, or it could be 12-13. to 13. I don't think it's a $30 card in a year, but I think three years out, it will be over 20 mm. If you go, you know, if we're talking about three to four years with no reprints, then it could be fine, but I, I ultimately think it's probably a little more narrow than you might be selling it as. All right. So here's the other one, which I think is is closer to being the, the Great Henge. Lithoform Engine for four mana. Also a legendary artifact. Two tap, copy target, activated or triggered ability you control. You may choose new targets for the copy. Three tap, copy target, instant or sorcery spell you control. You can choose new targets for the copy. Four tap, copy target, permanent spell you control. This is the poster child for open-ended synergy. It fits everywhere. You can put this in so many different decks, and it will range from amusing to broken, depending on what you put around it. But th this, is, this, to me, screams $20 to $30 Mythic down the road. Uh, Lithoform Engine is, I like this a lot more than Forsaken Monument. And I was reading it and trying to figure out how good I thought it was. It's probably, probably, uh, yeah, this is definitely a lot stronger. I think people are going to put this maybe in, they're going to start putting it in decks that maybe it doesn't fit in, but it is much more powerful and generically so. Being able to copy instance or sorceries is, I would imagine, your bread and butter on this because, you know, if you tack on. There are definitely cards that cost four and five that if you're paying seven or eight and getting two versions of it, it seem like they're going to be bonkers. Um, and then if you really get out of control, uh, if you're able to put like a Zendikar Resurgent on the stack and then copy that, like you're you're going to win the game unless someone 
brings that to a close real fast. So this is uh, this is very potent. I can see this at you know in the fifteen to twenty dollar range by this time next year. Yeah, maybe this time next year might be a little optimistic, but definitely a, a well ahead of Forsaken Monument, I think. One of the things, of course, to keep in mind here is that the presence of the expeditions as box toppers. Let's say that the average expedition is worth 20 to $30 at peak supply. You know, you're going to have scalding turns that might be 50, 60, 70, 80, still has yet to be proven. And you're going to have some that are going to get real low, like 10, 15, 20. And you've got 30 options to choose from, 10 of which are fetches. So that bleeds a lot of EV from the set. Like we are back to the masterpiece problem, and it's actually worse than it was before. With Battle for Zendikar, dealers were complaining about that EV bleed, that basically all the standard cards they were trying to sell were too cheap, because the chance of getting uh, a masterpiece in one in three boxes was was bleeding you know, 20 or $25 in EV. Now you are guaranteed to get that much bleed per box. Now these are non-foil expeditions, so they they are kind of an an odd odd duck in in the sense that they're not you know foil premiums, but they're still premium fetch lands. And apparently, I think some people missed this tidbit. Even the non-foils apparently have a high gloss varnish treatment on the border, so. They don't look matte, sum total. They, I suspect they have similar uh, varnish to what we saw on the Inventions, in fact. Especially if you had European copies of the Inventions that were matte in the middle and had the spot varnish on the outside. I think it's going to be something like that on the detail work on those right and left uh, uh, border treatments for these expeditions. So... Puts a lot of pressure, for instance, on ultimate secret layer fetches <laughs> that people were picking up uh, at an average of 50 bucks a piece. And that EV bleed is a big factor in challenging, you know, how many of these mythics can push to a $20 plus price point in a reasonable time frame and, you know, whether they're going to get there at all. Well, the... Um... You know, the, the non-foil copies having a gloss to them sounds almost bad. Uh, it sounds like weird printing. I want my foils to be foils and my mats to be matte. I'm a I'm a traditional a American man. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I think Battle for Zendikar is a pretty good frame of reference. Um, nothing in that card was worth anything. And that set was worth anything, right? You had Gideon, Ally of Zendikar str- struggled at 30. And was like a like what was it thirty two copies at the Pro Tour, and uh, reason saw a little bit of play in Modern too, and just the rest of the set just crumbled. Um, now Battle for Zendikar was also a little depowered, but people are saying the same thing about this one, and I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's wrong. So I agree that this is a particularly juiced set of um, masterpieces. So we'll see how it plays out with these mythics, but I don't, I agree that it's going to be a little tighter, a little harder for some of these to uh, hit the heights that we might otherwise see. Could, could take a little longer. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think that it doesn't the mean they can't one. get there. It's just a little longer. Yeah. 
here's the third mythic that jumps out at me as having that potential. Ancient Green Warden was revealed today. Four double green for a 5-7 with reach. You may play lands from your graveyard. So it's Crucible of Worlds on a stick. And if a land entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. So, if the land has a come into play ability, it triggers twice. If you have landfall abilities, they trigger twice. And if there's some other permanent in play that is looking for uh, triggers based on lands entering the battlefield, that's triggering twice as well. This card is bonkers. Uh, (laughs) This is... It's not Primeval Titan, but feels like it's probably the closest thing we've had to that in a while. Uh, Obviously, you're not getting a payoff as soon as you put it into play. Um, Not even like Sylvan Primordial did, but I mean, Sylvan Primordial got banned too. Uh, Crucible of Worlds is a very very powerful effect, especially when you have lands that you have to sacrifice. And if you have other additional land play mechanics, like if you have an Azusa in play, and then you untap and cast Ancient Green Ward, and you can just play them from your, you know, play my fetch from my graveyard, sack it to go get something, play my fetch from my graveyard, sack it to go get something. And by the way, now you're getting all these landfall triggers, which is just like, right? Can you just imagine that? Your Lotus, your Lotus Cobra is in play, and you're just building up ridiculous amounts of mana. Yeah, like that. If you have, if you somehow go like Lotus Cobra, Azusa, and then untap. I think you can play I'd have to do I'd have to figure it out in my head, but if you can untap and play Ancient Green Warden with a fetch, you can probably just like basically go infinite. I mean it'd be just be disgusting. So this card is the real deal. I looked him up on cool stuff and saw that he had was ten dollars but sold out. But this is the card that I would be keeping an eye on for sure. There's also all sorts of weird lands that do things on entry like doesn't Calney Garden make a zero one plant token or something? Yep. You're right. So I mean if you have a way to sack the lands, like a Zuran Orb or something, you can just start doing really silly things. Like if you have a Zuza and this thing and a Zuran Orb, then Calney Garden's making all these tokens and then presumably you're doing something with those tokens. Mm-hmm. He's interesting with um Amulet of Vigor too, because this that should work as far as I no, I'm pretty sure. Well, all your lands come into play on tap, so if you're using the bounce lands, you can still, of course, use them before you sack them and then replay them. <laughs> yeah, but you'd get it twice. Right. So the problem uh, with the bounce lands is that would you have to bounce two lands? Yeah. Yeah, so that's not good. Yeah, maybe not that good. Unless, of course, the the other lands in play are ones that you want to be bouncing, like yeah. Calvin Garden. Yeah, there's you're probably, not winning so games much where you're bouncing your own lands. Yeah, I haven't thought through it all. I'm sure somebody has. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do with this card. The, 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 the bottom line is they have deliberately printed commander-focused mythics here that don't have any real regard for standard. These things are in here to give commander players some wide open synergy cards that are just going to be that are thematic and are going to get played for years in a whole bunch of different commander decks. I think Ancient Green Warden might be standard playable. Sure, maybe. But I care more about this card in commander by a long mile, especially given that nobody gets to play standard this year. Agree. Sure. So 
some other stuff that jumped out at me there's a card base camp that got revealed enters the battlefield tap taps for colorless add one mana of any color spend this mana only to cast a cleric rogue warrior or wizard spell or to activate an ability of a cleric rogue warrior or wizard this is only an uncommon it may end up a promo at some point very it has exactly the kind of like fnm promo feel but is that even going to be a program this year given the way that the wizards play network is operating so i would keep an eye out in europe especially for sneaky cheap copies of base camp like somebody will have a brick at like 32 cents times 100 or something and the buy list on these in a couple of years will be a buck 40 or 225 or something mm. yeah i could see that that seems like it's probably a good angle on a couple of eu arbitrage plays mm-hmm. i thought glass pool mimic jumped out at me not that glass pool mimic the card is exceptionally powerful but remember phantasmal image was uh like 20 bucks and a standard powerhouse at one point um now this is one more mana and you can't copy your opponent's creatures but it doesn't die when you target it. And also it's a land if you need it to be. So, you know, if these spell lands end up better than we anticipated, or I should say if they if they play really well, Glass Pool Mimic could become a legit card. But I mean, I guess that's still for standard, so that doesn't really matter. Also, there's that uh, that black card who I'm trying to find. Oh, Sky Clave Shade is also essentially, it's the quote-unquote fixed Bloodgast, which is... Uh, I think very powerful, but still also has the, but who's playing paper problem. Yeah. Here's the other thing about these mythics, whether or not the regular copies can get up to 25 or 30, I have zero hesitation on buying any of those three as foil extended arts. Yet their peak supply lows in three to four weeks in Europe. For sure. Those will end up on a pro trader group buy singles buy list. And it, it will be a rush amongst the pro traders to snap them off because they're just too obvious. <laughs> There's also some cool rares that showed up there that are going to be that level of playable. Like Skyclave Relic is a three casting cost artifact with indestructible that adds one mana of any color. So it's already basically a dark steel ingot, but it's got kicker three. And if you kick it, which costs six total. It enters the battlefield with two tap tokens that are copies of Skyclave Relic, which means for six mana, you get uh, three more mana per turn, and it can be of three different colors. And if you've got things that multiply tokens and so forth, you just get out of hand right away. Yeah, Skyclave Relic is real solid because the worst version of this card is, like you said, uh, Darksteel Relic, right? Or Darksteel Ingot or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, which is already a solid commander rock that you can fit in a bunch of decks. Exactly, fine. Not like crazy, but totally fine. But this is all upside. So that actually seems very legitimate to me, especially if you have any sort of stupid combo or to- token crap that'll then allows you to make you know spend six mana and get twelve mana rocks back. <laughs> like someone's going to figure out a way to flood the board with these and then kill people, and it's going to be awesome. Like. A whole bunch of relics on the table and then just animate them and swing. Uh, on that note, Ashaya Soul of the Wild also looks very powerful. Uh, that's the five mana 
legendary creature whose power and toughness are equal to the number of lands you control. So, like, whatever, an EDH, you're paying five for, like, an 8-8 or something. But all of your non-token creatures also become forests. And as long as your group isn't running mass land destruction... Uh, well, although, actually, that's not even really doing it because it's not turning your lands into creatures. It's turning your creatures into lands. It turns every creature you control into a land of war elf. Sure. Which is pretty potent in EDH and gives you a lot of those creatures who are just sort of on defense duty or utility duty some extra action. Um, that card's going to end up being quite useful for a lot of people. Yeah, I can see that. There's that uh, the white landfall enchantment that's going to see a ton of play over time. Felidar Retreat. Oh, yeah. It, this card I would normally expect to cost five or six mana. At four mana and only one white, so three and a white, it's an enchantment with landfall. Whenever the land, whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, choose one. Create a 2-2 white cat beast creature token. So it's a cat and a beast that gives it extra potency. Uh, and a plus put a, or put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control keep in mind this is a format that already has so many different decks where you can abuse putting counters on creatures and if i'm playing the attracts a counters version of my deck or one of a bunch of other counters focused commanders that happen to run white i get to drop a fetch land crack it and put plus two plus two worth of counters on my creatures and presumably a lot of that got doubled by hardened scales or whatever other shenanigans i've got going on and the creatures get Vigilance until the end of turn, Th this card slots into so many decks down the road. There's just there's just so many broadly applicable cards here. Yeah, Retreat to Ameria is... <laughs> or, sorry, Felidar Retreat. Is, is the upgraded is, Retreat to Ameria. Yeah, people are posting that. You versus the guy she told you not to worry about yeah. with that, and, and they're right. <laughs> yep. They're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else jump out at you as being pretty uh, sassy? Honestly, no. Not at the moment. I haven't been too blown away by the spoilers here. There's a couple cool stuff, but it's not like some of the other sets we've had. Uh, I like Akiri Fearless Voyager because I have to assume that the setup here is that somewhere between now and the D&D &D set, and it might just be the D&D &D set, they're going to dump a bunch of fresh equipment on us. Like, in D&D, &D, equipment is everything. That's, like, the whole thing. So we're for sure getting a whole bunch of famous D&D &D gear. And it would behoove people that want to do their research to pull out a Dungeon Master's Guide and start reading through the various magic items and trying to figure out which ones would make cool magic cards. Because a bunch of those are probably coming. So this is Akiri Fearless Voyager 1 Red White 3-3. Core Warrior, Legendary Creature. Whenever you attack a player with one or more equipped creatures, draw a card. And then for one white, you may unattach an equipment from a creature you control. If you do, tap that creature and it gains indestructible until end of turn. That is a cute and powerful little ability because often when you're wasting mana and tempo to put equipment into play and then suit things up, Somebody just kills the creature, and you don't only really just lose the mana and tempo of the creature play, you also invalidate the equipment unless you have something else to put it on. So this single mana escape clause where you can basically protect that creature at the cost of just get you know taking the equipment off is a very helpful little thing if you want to build an equipment-heavy deck. So I don't think that Akiri herself is a spec, 
but I am curious to see whether they'll give us enough sexy equipment this year to make commanders like this something that players want to re-explore. Because there's a whole bunch of older core cards that are, you know, super useful in this archetype from Stoneforge Mystic on out. I, yeah, I'm not, I mean, there's a pretty good sequencing there because you can go to equip an equipment to your creature. They target the creature in response. You activate, uh, can you activate his ability in response? Hold on, wait, let me find the exact word. Yeah, uh, if, if you already had a different equipment on them. So if you're Voltroning up, they, they, oh, yeah, they have yeah. to get rid of the creature before when you don't have one white up, which presumably is not when you're going to equip the creature. You also could yeah. start with something like uh, Lightning Greaves, so they don't have any real option. Yeah, I, I just read that text again. It's I don't know. I, I see where you're going with it. I'm not super in love with this either. Um, it's not to say that there won't be a, a bump in equipment decks when the D&D stuff comes around, but I don't know how much Akiri is going to matter in that case. It would be because of the D&D and what that brings, not because of what Akiri brings to the table. And there are a lot of good artifact commanders already. Um, so I don't know if Akiri does anything that they don't do. How do you feel about the mythic flip creature land? Turn timber the serpentine wood. It is a land that taps for green. If you pay three life, it comes into play untapped. Otherwise, it comes into play tapped. And later in the game, when you don't need a land, you can look at the top seven cards of your library. You may put a creature card from among them onto the battlefield. If that card has converted mana cost three or less, it enters with three additional plus one plus one counters. So you're guaranteed to make a big boy. You put the rest of the on the bottom of your library in any random order, and that costs seven. My opinion about this is the same as it is for all of these spells. It's just going to matter how useful these are as a as a function of land slash big spell. And I don't certainly don't have the answer to that. And I don't think anyone can conclusively claim that they know how it's going to play out either. I think that this one seems fine, uh, not stellar. Uh, you know, I don't have all the other ones memorized, so it's hard to compare. I I. It's it's fine. I'm not blown away by it, and this is what I mean by, like, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm amenable to the claim that this is a slightly depowered set because that mythic just doesn't really jump off the page to me. Here's the thing I think people are missing, though. What if I advance this argument? That in any green-based creature deck and commander, you might as well run this land. Mm. If you put it in the land slot, if you count it as a land slot, that's fine. Um, but then now one of the lands in your deck is a come in the play tap land that only makes one color. Sure, but it, but these the myth, but the life. mythic ones all let you yeah pay three life and in commander yeah, when but you start with forty it's like whatever. It's not a basic and also only makes one color and like if you're playing a monocolor green deck yeah this seems like it's a pretty solid include if you're playing a three color more deck I don't know if you want to give up a slot for it. I don't, I don't know. I don't love it. I don't love it. How how, uh, card, how often, though, do we see Mythic Lands? Well, right. This is this is the part of this that's very difficult to evaluate. I, I have a theory about this card. This is going to be very expensive down the road. Not only is it a flip card that they are not going to be... That they have to put special effort into to reprint. And keep in mind, we're getting way more double face cards this year. It's a theme for the whole year. So in both Kaldheim and the Hogwarts set, we're getting more of these um, that are related to the themes of those sets. 
So Wizards is clearly on, you know, there are going to be more DFC reprints in the future. That's true. But you, you still have to make a concerted effort to reprint a DFC, and this one has specific Zendikar callouts. I could easily see this being the kind of card that's going to go four or five years before they even consider reprinting it, because it's a very uh, thematic, Zendikar-specific thing. It's not likely to be a uber staple that gets out of control and is needed in constructed formats that they feel a need to present more copies of and so forth. It's a very unique niche thing but at the same time it's very it's going to find its way into just this time let me put it to you this way what's your call on edh rec count a year out uh 5500 okay that's a reasonable number that that might be right but a mythic with a 5500 if it's going to get down to say six bucks, is not going to stay at six bucks. I uh, yeah, you'll have to keep an eye out and see what the play count looks like after, you know, relative to the other cards in the set after like two months, maybe three months is probably a good point. I'm not so I understand what you're saying. I'm not sold on it yet, but we will see. At, at a rare, I at a rare you. value, this would not be turning my head. Sure. I, I I get it. But I get it. I guess I'm. I, I I have a feeling. I have a feeling we're gonna buy copies of this between four and five in Europe, and they will buy list at nine. Within twelve to eighteen months. My my only point is that I'm not convinced. Not that it's wrong. Just I'm not sold yet. One of the things I like about it is no one really knows how to evaluate these properly yet. Yeah. And so that I agree. They can get real low. <laughs> especially yeah. given everything else that's going on in this set, they they can get especially low. Yep, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's the big question is how good are these cards actually? Um, one of the other cards that jumped out at me was Phylath World Sculptor. It's only a rare, but it is a, a semi-fixed Avengers Endicar, but it, that's fine because a second Avengers Endicar is still good. Sure. So that card's going to move some copies. The, really, the only problem is that it's got red is, in it as well, which is going to cut down on the number of decks. But those uh, those foil treatments could be could be pretty decent. How about this bad girl uh, constructed card that could still have EDH applications in rare? Magmatic Channeler, Human Wizard 1-3. As long as there are four or more instant or sorcery cards in your graveyard, Magmatic Channeler gets plus three, plus one. So it's a 4-4. Four, four. Tap, discard a card, exile the top two cards of your library, then choose one of them. You may play that card this turn. For EDH, mean? For everywhere? I could see, Every, I could okay. see this in Pioneer. I don't know if it's good enough for Modern. I'd have to see what the list looks like. But pi, standard, Pioneer, Commander, Casual, Cube, whatever, this card seems pretty strong. Yeah, unplayable in EDH, but uh, could be very potent in Pioneer, at least, and possibly in Modern. Why is this unplayable but in EDH? Why? What does this do in EDH that I want it to do? You get to cast an extra card every it, turn? Yeah, but, I mean, it, presumably I'm, pl I'm playing EDH, right? Drawing cards is never a problem. In red? If uh i mean there's even yeah because even red still has options and with especially with all the artifact card draw 
I mean, I'm not like I just I'm, I don't know. Then you have to discard a card to but do you get, it. But you get the you're switching the card. You're not even looting. You're switching a card for access to two other cards and picking the I'm best sure. of two. That's pretty I'm, good. I mean, if you have a card in your hand that's not very good at the moment, and then you discard it and exile the top two and hit two lands, neither of which you need, now you've just lost a card and didn't progress your game state. Hey, 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 I mean, lo- looters get played plenty in Commander. I and this not is not saying, looter. well, mm, disagree. This is a worse looter. What? Because a looter keeps a card in your hand. You, you, <laughs> you, uh, presumably when you're looting, you're looking to cast something. I agree, but the card you draw might not be something you can make use of at the moment. It's at least worth pointing out, uh, in agreement with you, that you can't just fire this off end of their turn, then do it again on your turn necessarily, because it requires you to hold up the mana yeah. to to cast. And if you if the two things you are looking at is a land and a permanent, it doesn't do anything for you at the end of their turn. But right. you still do in a in say an is it deck that's got it's very heavy on instants you might well be able to do some very nasty things end of their turn and start of your turn and the fact that you get to see four cards in that play cycle is a lot of digging if you're playing an is it deck and you have magmatic channeler in your list then you should just sell your collection and wow. pick up another hobby so what okay so what do, you, is... what do you put the edh rec stats at on this for a, a year round i put it at like Three and, under three and a half to four thousand. <laughs> under three hundred. No way. <laughs> car. I don't think the card is in any way like at all playable. Interesting. I think mono red decks are the only decks that could possibly think about, it, and even that, I think it's a stretch. All right, put that one on the record. Let's check in on that in a year. <laughs> I mean, under three hundred might be a little hyperbolic, but like, I don't think the card's good. All right. How about this mythic? Morog Fur- Fury of Akum. Four double red six six. And by the way, it has really nice showcase art. Legendary creature, Minotaur Warrior. Each creature you control gets plus one, plus zero for each time it has attacked this turn. Landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, if it's your main phase, then there's an additional combat phase after this phase. At the beginning of that combat, untap all creatures you control. <laughs> so this thing on the table with a bunch of stuff going on in the mid gate, mid to late game. You crack a fetch and get two additional combat phases. When land enters the battlefield under your control, yeah. So if you somehow manage to hit the, if you double the landfall trigger, yes. If your main phase is additional phase after this phase, and if you've got a Zuza in play, <laughs> yeah. So a, theoretically, you could hit like four or five. A combat phases in a turn there's a lot of ways this thing can do work yeah that's that is interesting i don't think i read this close enough before because you're right you can get multiple landfall triggers in your first main phase and then have like six attack phases which is pretty gross yeah pretty gross and, and, so that's and, and are we good. agreed this is pretty sweet art like people are going to be drawn to play this card uh, I only saw... I haven't seen the... The showcase is available on Mythic Spoiler if you look. That's where I am looking. I don't see the Mythic the showcase art Scroll down it. to September 4th uh, reveals. Uh... 
Ah. Yeah, that's pretty cool looking. Yeah. That's pretty cool looking. I like that art. Yeah. I like that art a lot more than the one on the card. The normal card. For sure. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Oh, James, it's 11.30. If we're going to talk about the reserve list, we should do it now. Fair enough, new dad. I feel you. I got your back. <laughs> the uh, Let's move on to Tolarian Community College. <laughs> A wonderful mainstay of the magic community, providing only the Shoot. finest in accurate and useful information. Here's 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 a joke that six of you will get. Uh, the Tolarian Community College is sponsored by Greendale, <laughs> and the six of you who got it appreciate that joke. Sure. Uh, yeah. So this popped up on our radar because he posted a video about the reserve list, which is usually whatever. Got a tremendous then, amount of viewings. Yeah, it was like two hundred fifty thousand or something when I looked this morning, and then. Dan Bach, who is a major magic vendor, owns, and it is worth pointing out here, a significant amount of power. I mean, yeah. I mean, probably he's got he's got a black worth. Lotus automobile that says Lotus on it. He's got a whole bunch of reserve list stuff in his inventory that he's been holding for a while. Um, yeah. His business is called Power Nine. Yeah, so not unreasonable to assume over seven digits worth of value in power. So certainly has a position on the reserve list. But the professor made a series of comments in his 15-minute video. And I'm sorry, I'm going to call him Brian. I can't do it. Brian made a series of points in his 15-minute video. And Dan responded to a handful of Well, no, no, no. Dan brought, dragged up a post he posted years ago. Like during some prior phase of reserve list shenanigans and people arguing over it and basically just brought it back to the forefront and said i've already refuted most of this in the past pre-refuted most of this in the past well because his the 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 snippet that i read today spoke specifically to the video okay he goes through and says okay he says dan is dan writes bullet point one brian said players complain just as often the case wizards of the coast listen and then he responds to it okay then he, yeah yeah know, i saw that part the too. next yeah so he definitely i, I mean i guess he he drug, dug up something he wrote in the past and then added some additional stuff to this video specifically i guess yeah. both, both happened you're right so I, I i don't know i watched through this 15 minute video and made a quick few notes that with timestamps. Sure. So let, let's just from the top for people that haven't seen it yet. And I'm loath to push traffic to it, but it's it's a topic of the day, so and this this issue is just not going away. A lot of this is ground we've re we've we're we've tread before. Re, 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 yeah, so we are gonna try to come at this from, you know, a fresh angle if possible. Uh where possible. Uh, let's put it this way the prof basically tried to call bullshit on the reserve list suggesting that all of the major arguments for keeping it are nonsense and therefore it should be removed so just off the top the arrogance (laughs) of thinking that he and the people that think like him have thought their way out of the corner 
in ways that the entire team at Wizards of the Coast and their legal counsel have not been capable of doing. It's just astonishing. And really, for me, highlights you know the outrage culture that has become a big portion of the magic content stream, especially on YouTube, and how it... The, I believe the toxicity and poison that seeps out of that process is much more detrimental to the game than anything to do with the reserve list. Because I think one of them measurably impacts the game and the other does not. Yeah. Um, I, 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 hold on, because I want to make a point on this. Is I, I think that's... I think you're right. Like, he's, you know... I have solved the problem of the reserve list, whereas all of Wizards has spent... 20 years thinking about it and somehow has it and you crack the case like do you think that's the case um but so there's two there's a a couple bullet points here i want to make at the top of this segment one i own no power or i I own a i own a cradle i have very little power i have no power nine right like none of it so uh i have essentially no economic dog in this race no financial gains to be made one so, way so let me chime in that i own probably i'm going to call it four or five thousand dollars worth of reserve list that's a tiny tiny fraction of my overall inventory and if you believe that that somehow influences my arguments here you know think what you will but it really doesn't <laughs> yeah. I, I i try to i think of these issues in terms of what makes sense for the game what makes sense for the players and my opinion on this is a little different than it was a few years back when I did the, the video for the professor um, because I've, you know, been exposed to different arguments on the topic since then. And I've also thought through it a little further. To the... All right. So, so, so we've, we've established our personal holdings here. The second point I want to make is that just 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 to state this is that. And we don't we don't have to listen to this now, but I just need you to hear it and be aware of it. Wizards isn't interested in you playing Legacy and Vintage. <laughs> it is not in their interest for you to play Legacy and Vintage. If you play Legacy and Vintage, you don't change your deck very often. You buy the cards you need for it once, and then every couple months, you might buy a couple singles because the metagame has shifted or they printed a new tool for your deck. But in general, the turnover on those decks is very low. As In contrast to standard, which is like a constant churn. So Matt Wizards makes way more money per player on people playing standard and also EDH because EDH, they just never stop buying cards for new decks. than they do Legacy and Vintage. So just keep that in mind. You're, the, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, this, this right. is an I, argument we've we've tabled yeah. many times. And I think what's interesting here is that when the prof is is campaigning for fetch wait, wait, for fetch lands to catch a reprint. Wait, wait, hold on. Hold on. Let me get my last point. My last point. I just want to get my last point out because this is this is, I think, the, the, the biggest one that maybe is least obvious. It's very clear that Dan Bach has a vested interest in keeping the reserve list. He could lose a sizable amount of money if things went really screwy. Depending on the specifics, but yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Depending on how it plays out. Brian at the Tolarian Academy also has a very vested interest in all of this, but it's a little different. He gets to make a lot of videos and whip up followers get a lot of views, get a lot of ad revenue and build a brand by championing for the little guy who can't afford reserve list cards. It it is very much a problem that he wants to 
he has a vested interest in this problem existing because it gives him something to complain about. It, it's a, so when we we talk when we talk about biases, Dan Bach, Bach has a bias because he stands to lose money if it goes away. But Brian at the Tolarian Academy is also biased, just in a different way. So keep that in mind that he very much has a reason to have strong opinions about this. And the thing about being a content creator in that position is it's a win-win for him. If he campaigns hard for something like Fetchlands, and then they eventually give us a bunch of them in a year, he gets to go, see, that's because of me. Like, that's because we worked as a community to get this done. And it never would have yeah. happened without us, when in fact, it may well have been on their agenda to do it just because the timing was right. Whether or not the the complaint level was at, you know, 30% or 60% on the, on the Richter scale. And he wins either way. It If they don't do it he gets to keep complaining about it making videos like he did with the fetchlands and milk that outrage and never mind ever having an actually real discussion with anybody about these topics like this is a man who consistently just loops in people who already agree with him and then has long-winded discussions about where they're basically doing nothing any better than you and I do. We're two like-minded individuals talk, talking about MGG Finance topics, more or less from the same perspective. But we try to bring in people now and again when they're willing to, to work with us to you know have open discussions like we did with Ellie, etc. Prof had me on the once years ago, but more or less, first of all, didn't interact with me directly. And secondly, didn't uh, set the whole thing up with a, you know, a rhetoric an undermining of my discussion with the word rhetoric right at the front of the video to make sure that he had a chance to throw a jab in and make sure people didn't take it seriously yeah. and has done taken any number of different steps since then to undermine both our influence and the influence of MTG finance as a whole, as though what we say to people to help them save money playing the game is utterly useless. Whereas when he is championing things that aren't particularly well thought through, they're immediately super useful. So he's absolutely biased, and, and he's also just poorly researched and poorly educated. I mean, for a guy who's called the professor and runs a, a website called the Tolarian Community College, he doesn't do his research. He goes out and tries well, to find things that support his points. He doesn't ever try to present evidence, and didn't in this video at all, to counter what he's trying, this, the point he's trying to advance. That's one of those, is he clueless about what he's talking about or does he just pretend like he's clueless because it doesn't serve his purpose and i don't know which one is true and ultimately it doesn't matter the discussions i've had with him during the era where he was willing where he was interested in doing that like there was a point where he was concerned that the mtg finance community was mad at him and he was asking like talking to me about it we're way way past that now like he just wants nothing <laughs> nothing to do with, with well, okay well i will i will toss this out if you talk if you talk to brian he's being maybe he hates james and he's sick of him if he wants to talk to me i will go on his show i'll have a chat with him i'd be and i don't even have to be i you know i i don't even have to be confrontational but it does seem like he's uh extremely echo chambery chambery over there and never has anyone who takes the opposite stance he, so he, I, I guarantee you he cannot survive a friendly intellectually rigorous conversation on this topic with me or anybody with the same amount of research he just can't yeah it, it, I don't fully agree with all of Dan Bach's points, and I think that they need some refinement. And I'm sure some of mine might as well, and other people would 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 likewise 
you know, have their pros and cons in terms of stepping up to the plate to try to provide the counterpoint. But the counterpoint definitely exists. And it exists for reasons that he doesn't even bother to address. I mean, you spoke to his commentary about, um, you know, the accessibility of the game and alluded to how disingenuous that is, given how unimportant access to legacy and vintage are for Magic the Gathering. Yeah, that was that was at uh, time mark two minutes and 55 seconds. He says the reserve list is the biggest thing holding back the game today, which is just ludicrous and absolutely what, fucking like, ludicrous. It just, it just blows past the point. And you're like, wait, hold on a second. That is a major claim to be making. You're saying that the game is being held back, that there are a series of factors preventing the game from growth, and that the largest of those factors is the existence of the reserve list. Okay, so walk me through the steps of how this is happening. I'm not even saying that I disagree, like that I'm on the face disagreeing with it, but you got to give me something. And he just just tosses it out there like it's an a priori, like we just know that it's true. And it's like he he would get demolished by any kind of close inspection of these details. Let me break down just a few <laughs> obvious points. First of all, as you already mentioned, Wizards doesn't want people to play older formats. He he chimes in with, Mark Rosewater wants to be able to make sets with these cards. He said so. Okay, but Mark Rosewater is the head of design. That's, that's not the same as Wizards. He doesn't represent the views of the company, the corporate infrastructure, the engine of capitalism <laughs> that defines which, which... The, the future of this game. Which is only, which you can just only we, concerned with maximizing profit, and you can and and if you want to take issue with that, God knows For I am not a capitalist. No that's fine, but like in the context of this discussion, sort of you, meaningless. Well, you have to take it for granted that that's what the engine will do, right? And, and right. so you have we, to you have to examine their motivations, not from the perspective of the lead designer who thinks it would be fun to do, to build a set. Like I'm sure Mark has already brainstormed. Like, keep in mind that Wizards does brainstorming sessions once a year or whatever, where they do a wacky ideas day. And keep in mind that on Magic Online, they released several years ago, Vintage Masters. So a version of the master set already exists in digital form. They have for sure workshopped that product internally. They probably already know roughly how they would go about it, but... It's a lot easier to release in digital than it is in paper because there are so many logistics issues that the prof is not giving proper credence to. Oh, the- hey, you want you want to hear something funny? Go for it. At at the at the three minute and fifteen second mark, he says there's no reason to think that the secondary market would be impacted by the reprints. Okay, just 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 hold just, just hold on before just hold on to that thought. No reason to think the secondary market would be impacted by the reprints. All right, so why are we having them? But okay, then later on in the video, eleven minutes later, at fourteen minutes, he talks about the vintage masters was online was drafted into the ground, and plateau is now forty cents. So yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so what's the point there? That, yeah, it's just so the dynamic, the economic dynamics of digital versus paper are not the same it's the same card and so someone like him with a simplistic architect like a uh, platform for exploring this topic sees that and says see look they did it and magic didn't implode but let me go top level on this for a second and make a couple things clear so that it 
provides the context for from where I'm coming from in my attempt to analyze this situation and what I think Wizards should do and what's good for the game and good for the players. I don't really give a shit <laughs> if, they, if they keep the reserve list or get rid of it. This is an interesting intellectual discussion to me, but ultimately I don't at all think that the game will collapse if they reprint the reserve list. I don't think that that particular promise to the Magic community is a major cornerstone of what keeps the game healthy or keeps the game thriving or keeps the secondary market churning other than in in relation to how it um, treats the reserve list cards specifically. And the reason for that is if they broke that specific promise, it certainly impacts potentially the prices of a bunch of cards on the reserve list to varying in greater degrees. And we'll get to that part, but there aren't really any other promises that are sitting over on the table that then become problematic. One of the problems, <laughs> if if you break a promise, for instance, to your spouse, is they start wondering what other pr- times you're lying. <laughs> so getting caught once in a lie from your significant other becomes problematic just because you're not trusted on a bunch of things that you have no reason to lie about. Likewise, if you lied about the reserve list and there was some other thing the purple list that also might get broken people would just assume you're going to break it but the reality is that wizard like wizards really only has this one thing the 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 rest of what goes on in magic is you know we're in the midst of a super cycle of very heavy reprints so the reserve list is an anomaly and if removed is has a very localized impact on the magic economy. Uh, magic would rule forward. It's not the end of the world. It really comes back to the what are we trying to accomplish? His his argument that it's holding back magic is demonstrably false because magic is thriving in its presence. And there's no evidence whatsoever, no statistics or or demonstrable evidence that we can point to that shows an area of magic where players are having trouble interacting with the game and are leaving the game because they can't do the thing they want to do. Are now are there players that want to play vintage for and want vintage decks to be $500 and want legacy decks to be $500? Absolutely. There are certainly players who play who are fairly well invested in the game that play commander, play modern, play pioneer, don't really have access to a lot of the cards they would need for legacy or vintage and would like to have access to them. There are also some reserve list cards that feature prominently in EDH and that people would like to have access to. You know, Gaia's Cradle is pushing up into this $500 to $1,000 range now when it was two to $300 for many years. The um, There are other commander cards like Treachery um, and Gilded Drake that are getting very expensive and it's frustrating for commander players to not have access to them. But the reality is a lot of those cards have relatively um, similar cards available that replace them with only minor detriment to your deck. And because Commander is not a CEDH-only format where everybody's trying to be max competitive all the time and in fact is very um, flexible in terms of how any given playgroup chooses to establish the acceptable power level, there's so much room inside what is now the most important format of the game to 
figure out how to just ignore the reserve list. And and as much as it is valid to say, hey, I want a cheaper Gaia's Cradle. Gaia's Cradle is a great card in a lot of decks, and it's frustrating to me that I can't get it for less than a thousand bucks. You can get Growing Rights of Illamok. You can play a bunch of other busted things that give you infinite amounts of mana. Like you can write Gaius Cradle on the back back of a basic. If you land. really want to, and and you, <laughs> at your play at home play group during COVID, nobody's gonna bitch. Yeah, uh, it, we we're we're roughly the same space with a major with I think one major difference. Um, I agree that like on the grand scheme of Magic, the reserve list doesn't matter whether it's there or not, or like it would be a minor impact um, if they never ever loosen it whatsoever until the end of time okay if they do repeal the entire thing next year and begin reprinting stuff it would be wild for that period of like in that moment it would seem crazy but like i don't think any of this is going to have a dramatic impact on wizard's bottom line or the health and continuity of magic like ultimately it's not that big of a deal um it, it, even just within the small context of magic i do think the reserve list should stay uh i like it from a I'm going to say flavor perspective. I think that it gives the game something fascinating, intriguing, and ultimately irreplaceable in a otherwise very digital lifestyle. So this is, this is your version of my unobtainium argument. Yeah, essentially is, you know, you so Snapchat obviously was extraordinarily popular for a long while, still still very popular. And part of the appeal there was the the core idea of the pro program was every other photo you take lasts forever. We are going to have photos that only last for five seconds. It's a sense of impermanence that does not exist elsewhere. And that's part of what made it so cool. Uh, and that is sort of what the reserve list is within magic. It's like, okay, everything else is ultimately going to be accessible. Every other game you play, everything else you touch can be replaced, but not these. These are special. They are different than everything else you touch and that you see and that you own. And you get to have a special relationship with them in a way that you don't have with anything else. And that doesn't even mean that you have to own them to have that relationship with them. Just by them existing and you knowing they're there and you coveting them, it creates a relationship that you don't have elsewhere, which I think is a really fascinating aspect of the game. And if that was done in such a way that those game pieces that you had ultimately were more expensive than you wanted them to be was severely impacting your ability to engage with a game in a meaningful capacity, then I think you might have an argument for appealing it, but it's not like, right? Like we know that that's, that's true. And I think if, if, you know, if, if, if I had to make a change today, I would say like, all right, take the take the dual lands off. That's fine. Kick them off. Whatever. They're just lands. But leave everything else. People can have their dual lands, but everything else should mostly stay. Even kick off all the chaff that we don't give a shit about. I, but keep keep the power nine and a couple other cards. Despite my frequent comments about him recently, I have no personal beef with Brian. I don't give a shit about him one way or the other. I mean, but, I get annoyed by personalities who make their brand based on this sure but. i mean I, I i think there's lots of things he's doing that are annoying me but it's not i don't take it personally or or have a personal thing against him and i agree with that point that he made that if you were going to experiment one of the places you could start would be to take the duels off 
the reserve list. Duels are something that most commander players would like to have. That is actually the most important or the most valid of all the arguments in uh, when comparing um, accessibility, uh, the reality of accessibility to your most important formats for the brand. This is really all about a commander. The idea that he, that he's spouting about legacy and vintage being these wonderful formats that would greatly expand the reach of the game, total <laughs> oh. fucking bullshit. He he yeah. called he called bullshit. <laughs> I'm calling bullshit on him. That is just he doesn't understand what the hell he's talking about. He's so far off base. It's it, he may as well be on another planet. Those formats are super technical that reward extremely tight play an in-depth knowledge of the format. They're very hard to play casually. Even if you reprinted most of the cards involved, the decks would still be extremely expensive versus the on-ramping budget, the, the budgets of players that are on-ramping into the game. Nothing about accessibility of cards, like renewed accessibility of cards for Vintage and Legacy, would in any way help Wizards on the real bottleneck of the game which is, this is an extremely complex game that takes a lot of research and commitment, financial and time, both, to get into. And the best onboarding vehicles for that have nothing to do with Vintage and Legacy. They don't yeah. even have to do with Commander or even necessarily Standard. Like, the, the, very basic decks. Like, I was talking about this with my significant other the other day because she was expressing some minor amount of interest in the game based on this D&D thing because we've been playing D&D for a few years. Um, that the best kind of deck is something that Wizards rarely prints. They should be printing 40-card decks that have like four or five or six total unique spells, four copies of each, giving people high-repetition uh, decks where they only have to parse a few cards and, and card types and then moving on from there. And... They've never really done a great job of the on-ramping, and a lot of what they've done in the premium era of Magic in the last couple of years has signaled that they're sort of giving up on that. <laughs> they're kind of relying on other players to do all the onboarding as opposed to providing really excellent products. Here we have, looking forward to next summer, they're getting rid of the core set, and the core set over the last couple of years was super was a co high-complexity set anyway, and now it's going to be a D&D &D set, which says, yeah, we're not actually looking to get noobs, we're looking to pull people over from other complex hobbies and overlap yeah. their their pre-existing Venn diagrams. So all of that says that for for many reasons, Brian's just wrong. The, so the Vintage and Legacy thing is those are niche versions of the game. Accessibility is only a great reserve list art argument when either you have a game that has a single format so if we're talking about chess and the king has you can't get kings anywhere and they're a hundred thousand dollars, then you're then I am so on side with Brian, it's not even funny. If you have a ridiculously expensive game piece and no one can play the game without it, then that's one end of the spectrum. Unfortunately for him, we're way on the other end of the spectrum. We're on a we, magic is a game platform, not a singular format. And the cards in question are only really only really have high utility in one major format, which is Commander. They've already long since banned them out of Standard, Extended, Modern, 
kitchen table, draft, sealed, and all, all these other niche formats, popper and what have you. So yeah, it would be cool if all of us could play a little more legacy and vintage, but honestly, having played those formats, they're good, but they're not so much better that they would kick the doors open and all of a sudden you double the number of players playing magic. Like it's not even remotely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me tie, let me tie a thread through here. So you're completely right. Legacy and vintage are, 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 fascinating formats for the very enfranchised player but are absolutely going to turn off new even a, a reasonably experienced player who's never dabbled in them before um because they're un, just very complex um so we, we and i will i would put forth the point that player people are excited to watch vintage events and like vintage play because it happens rarely because you don't get those cards together in paper very often or what have you, or they don't bother with it online a lot. But the reason that it's interesting to watch is because you don't see it often. If there was constant vintage stuff going out, it'd be a lot less interesting. Um, Brian, at the again, at the 14-minute mark, makes a point that Vintage Masters is drafted into the ground, and he uses that as an argument that, like, partly as well that Vintage is popular, but that's not Vintage. That's Vintage Masters, which is Cube, and we know Cube is popular. That's not Vintage. And let me tie this to a personal anecdote. When I was a kitchen table player, and we played a lot of Magic, but only, only you know, casually at home, and I thought Vintage was kind of interesting, and I read an article by, I don't know, it was Stephen Menendian or somebody, and they talked about the deck, and the deck in Vintage was this uh, ridiculous combo deck and I think it killed with 10 drills but I'm not positive but it was a combo deck and I'm like this is really cool nobody really cares about proxies in our group so I'm gonna proxy this deck and play it and it'll be really cool because I'll play with a vintage deck this sounds fascinating so I didn't start I before I started proxying the cards I started to like read a little bit more about the deck and it, the guy was like, so the hardest part of playing this deck is that you run the risk of getting judge called for time on turn one because you open your seven card hand and now you run through a massively complicated decision tree full of statistics to figure out if you can kill your opponent on turn one or not. And if you can do it with backup and the odds that they can counter you depend based on how many pieces of backup you have, or should you wait till the next turn and draw an extra card and then try and go off. And it was like, this wasn't, there was zero interactivity here whatsoever. There was no game being played here. And it was just like, wow, vin vintage isn't, this isn't interesting. Like it's a cool thought experiment to sit around and wonder about it. But like, this isn't interesting for me as a player. And if my friend also played vintage, had a vintage deck, it still wouldn't have been interesting because like I couldn't possibly figure out how to play that deck. He's going to put a, his proxy Mishra's workshop in the play and play Thorn of Amethyst and we're going to be done. Like the gameplay happens at such a level that it's just inaccessible for most players and ultimately isn't not, not that interesting. Like it's definitely less interesting than a lot of like modern games that take place. And Legacy's better, but it's still... As someone who knows how to play Magic and was very into Magic for a very long time and knew how to play Magic, Legacy could be fun, but a lot of times it was not that interesting, not compared to modern games, which had a lot more play to them at points. And, and, uh, and here's the thing. He's right that the accessibility of the vintage cards is much higher on Magic Online. 
And yet, in that environment, they are not the most popular formats on that platform. In fact, not mm -hmm. even close. Yeah. The vintage, and that's the, exactly the, the, the type of player who should play want to play. MTGO players are some of the most enfranchised players on the planet. They should be the ones playing vintage. And, and in reality, the formats just aren't that aren't that interesting to the average player. They they have every ability to go build vintage decks and play them. And this is one of the things that really takes the winds at, wind out of his sails, but he doesn't ever admit to it. Magic has a digital alternative. So there is no accessibility issue here. If you've got a computer and a Magic Online account and you really, really want to play Vintage, you can. And you don't have to proxy a single card. You can go buy the Magic Online version and go, go forth and conquer. You can get that fixed. Presumably, you're not just a Vintage aficionado. You also like other aspects of the game. You like to play Commander with your buddies over beer. Maybe you play some Modern or some Pioneer. Maybe you're a popper guy or girl. You've got a bunch of options. So while I can understand that it's always better to have more options and it's always better to have access to more cards and more accessibility is better than less accessibility, these are all truisms, there's no evidence that there's a burning, burning desire to play Vintage. First of all, because most players have never had access. Like, access to these cards has been, has been low for so long and it's been out of, like, the... the such a non-factor in Wizards planning for the game for so long that it's a, it's a total non-issue because all of the major formats in the game don't need those cards. But Brian's got it in his head that Legacy and Vintage would be the heart and soul of Magic if only everybody had access to those cards. So let's move on to two other points that absolutely have to be addressed. There's the legal angle. Is, is the legal thing, is our legal fears the only thing that's keeping Wizards back? And then the other one is, um, how to put this, that printing these cards would in any way be good for his target audience. <laughs> because he's completely <laughs> overlooking what they would actually do. <laughs> I can't wait to go through that part. So... Well, I think the legal access. I think I think you can, the legal access part of this can be put to bed pretty quick. We're not lawyers. We're not. We're not lawyers. He's not a lawyer. Yep. There might be. There are lawyers who have chimed in on yep. this at various points over the years who have some insight. The point is, absolutely nobody who doesn't have a law degree has can make any sort of educated insight into it. Well, and I, mean, I also just feel like I should point out that the the comments about. Uh, no lawsuits were brought in the past. Blah blah blah. But it's been ten years horseshit. since reserve list has changed. Such horseshit. It's been ten years. Right, but it's and, and more importantly, I think it's been ten years since reserve list has changed. So, like the the numbers at play here are significantly more. Yes, so than they so were. So that's a that's a, a Dan Bach point and, which, and a good one. That, which maybe is me chiming in on the reserve on the legal aspect of this. I don't know, but I, that that point jumped out. No, at but me. that's that was a Dan Bach point, and it's a good one. That the fact that nobody brought lawsuits in the past is in some ways a reflection of the um, the da the potential damage that was assessed at the time. The prof makes the claim that that all changes are the same, more or less, yeah. by by suggesting that look, they, they made these other like tweaks to it over time. They they added some cards, took some cards off. They tried to print some in from the vault relics and then backpedaled, and no one got sued. But that's because those were minor changes. What you're talking about is abolish the reserve list, and Dan Box's point is that is 
not measured in thousands or single digit millions. It's measured in hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. So they, the prof making the claim that no one would ever bring a lawsuit. And he really went at that way too hard. Like he has walked yeah. the plank and fallen into, into the sea. Like you can't even take him seriously because it's irresponsible to say what he said. Even though he's not a lawyer and he's and he clearly has no expertise in this area, and neither do we, we're not lawyers either. But we're all intelligent enough individuals that you cannot make that claim. I don't I don't know whether the whether a suit would appear, and I don't know whether the suit would be successful. I suspect I suspect that a suit would appear, and I suspect it would not be successful. <laughs> That's how I see You're, that. But yeah. to, to discount the premise that somebody might bring a suit is ridiculous. And especially in the country of the United States of America, one of the most litigious countries on the planet by a factor of a lot over almost anywhere else. Like when we look at your legal system from a Canadian perspective, we're like, holy shit, calm the fuck down. You guys are just yeah, it's, ridiculous down there. We, you know, it, arguing the specifics of this just seemed ludicrous. And, you know, well, my friend's a lawyer and he said this is also, okay. He, like here here are the very basic things that I think are, base, uh, are, are objective, which is there is the concept of the promissory estoppel. That may or may not be what Wizards is concerned about. We have reason to believe that it is. We have reason to believe that there could, there would be lawsuits, a lawsuit involved, were the reserve list to be changed. That's it. And we know that this law exists and there might be a problem with it. And all of us should stop arguing about whether, about the aspects of this law, uh, the court case at that point. We know it's out there. We know it's a concern of, it's likely a concern of wizards. That's all we have to know. And just, just that's well, it. But there is, there is more to the discussion that I think is important to have on the table and he doesn't put it on the table. So I'm and going to. That, to well, to, to make claims in either direction from him or from Dan seems stepping way out of station you can you can advance an idea but you have to table it to the you know the community well just in the in just the, gluing in the frame in the framework that it bears further discussion and it's by no means a certainty in either direction which it's 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 all just so masturbatory because it's meaningless like not i mean even more so than anything else we do because not only is it all conjecture we also don't have any of the knowledge or inside information necessary for it to even be useful conjecture now let me make the following point because he really does leave it off the table so we have the vendors on record saying they're they're totally fine with them reprinting all these cards right the the lawsuit can only possibly come from the people that feel like they are the most injured but internal to wizards they're having the discussion as to are you having any trouble getting people to buy your products as is says the lawyer and the product team goes, no, like we're, we're hitting targets. We're doing good. Will you get a lot more money if you print this product? And they look around the room and they go, yeah, like for the, for that release itself, but we probably, you know, even if we printed it to the moon and back that, that, you know, the echo effect of that only lasts for however long. And then we're going to be kind of, you know, after we've done it a few times, the shine's off the process, and we're going to be back in the same cycle anyway. It's not going to change the game in a meaningful way 
for the long term. And then they turn back to the lawyer and say, do you think we have any legal risk here? And the lawyer says, yeah, there's some. And the executives say, how much? And the lawyer says, enough that unless you need to do this, why bother? And everybody just nods. And that's the part the prof is missing completely. It's not that they're scared shitless that they really, really want to do this, but they're scared of this one thing and he's got it right and they've got it wrong. They know they can probably defeat that lawsuit. I mean, Hasbro's more powerful than whoever's going to come at them, whether it's a class action or not, whether Dan Bach has the resources to fight them or not. They might end up settling. And they, they, they might take that into account. They might say, hey, this product could make us $100 million and the lawsuit might cost us X to resolve, so that might work out okay. But there's just no reason for them to take that risk. Because again, they don't need these cards in circulation to keep the game healthy. They don't need these formats that these cards are most important in to keep the game healthy, other than EDH, where merely... Um, replacement level goods already exist but where many of the cards in question can rel relatively be easily replaced think of a card like gilded drake it steals a commander for two mana here's one of the things that they are missing that he's missing completely in his argument there are more than one way there's more than one way to skin this cat you don't have to reprint the cards to address any of the things he's looking to do because this is a game where you can just reprint new cards. And this is the part people are completely missing. If Wizards really cared about Legacy and Vintage, they would print Legacy and Vintage Masters with brand new power. If they really cared, they would uh, ban every reserveless card in both formats wow. and then give you something... And then they'd be like, well, we can't get around, we can't reprint cards because reserve list, but we want you guys to play Legacy and Vintage so badly that we're going to change the formats so that they, the reserve list doesn't keep you out of it. Yeah, it, imagine how well that it, would It's a around. relevant tool. That's another relevant tool to mention. They do have bannings that are disposable. There's been some rumor this, this year uh, that Commander is going to go through some kind of change this fall. One of the things rumored is that they're going to ban reserve list out of normal Commander and split the format into two, where there's one that uses reserve list and one that doesn't. Whether or not that ends up being true, I think it's a reasonable idea, at least to consider. I'm not convinced that I agree with it or don't agree with it, but it, it makes sense from the, fact, from the perspective of, if we want to make sure that the reserve list is not an issue for the average commander player, one of the tools at our disposal is just to say to them, hey, you're forgiven, you don't have to worry about those cards, because commander normal is just going to not use them. And CEDH, or whatever you want to call the other version, Commander Vintage or whatever, will use them. And then your playgroup can decide if you're playing by Commander regular Commander rules or Commander Vintage, or you're going to make up your own thing. That's already, like, Prof is just completely missing that there are so many other ways to go at this. The other one I was met... Most of which they haven't employed. Right. And, and they're easier and less risky. So that's the ones they're going to choose if they choose to do it. And... Back to my point about printing other cards, people say, oh, but you can't print functional reprints. I'm not talking about functional reprints. They're, des they're designers. They can design freshly, extremely powerful cards. You know what's funny here is if they split EDH, I just thought about this, if they split EDH, 
into non-reserve list EDH and like competitive one-on-one reserve list EDH. Every commander player who owns a pile of reserve list cards for that format, but doesn't play legacy or vintage, like 99.9% of those people aren't going to want to play legacy or vintage and now own all those cards that are suddenly useless in EDH, you're, the market suddenly has a humongous influx of duels and assorted power. Potentially. Assorted reserve list cards because it's like oh, every 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 one of those commander players with a duel at land doesn't really need it. See, anymore. I don't... It doesn't add, it doesn't add we, moxes, we've, we've been talking about this in the, the Discord, like trying to theorycraft this. I don't think that's what happens. I think that much more likely is... Like a lot of people have chimed in in terms of what they would do in that situation. And I think the consensus is just that people would end up, because of the expansiveness of the format and the fact that a lot of people play with different groups and different scenarios... You just end up having, you shift those cards to your Commander Vintage deck or decks and you build differently than the others. And that, and the thing is that that leans pretty well into what Commander is all about anyway. Like giving people fresh reasons to build new decks or adjust decks, yeah. it's just kind of the actual I, soul of Commander. I actually don't buy that at all. I think our Discord, first of all, is very, uh, leans very hard in one direction in that most of those players have no need to sell dual lands that they suddenly don't need anymore because you know, it's, it's but the nature of being in a financial discord. You probably have the money that you can hold on to those and not worry about it. And it wouldn't be an overnight change, but it would be, oh, uh, three months later, this set came out and I want to buy a booster box and I really can't justify it, but I could sell this bayou that i have from my deck that i had to take out and it's just sitting here like it would take time but a lot of those players would would be parting out their it, reserve list cards over time to pay to finance other magic purchases it's hard to suss out exactly how that might play out because while i i believe that that could be a thing and the person that's in the most awkward position is if you're small town lady who has a high powered edh deck and the other three people you're playing with never owned Guy's Cradle or Duels or whatever, and they're bitching because you're winning more often. You're in the most awkward position because if Wizards gives them a new set, a new paradigm to embrace, and the three of them agree, now you've got to make a decision of whether you're going to depower your deck or go find a new playgroup. So I can believe that that's a thing, but there's also going to be some people that are going to embrace this new higher-powered format that's being given some props and maybe a product is announced to support it or something so it's hard to know exactly how that would play out but the bottom line is that between bannings and printing new cards if they really wanted to for legacy or vintage or whatever there are many options and format management is another one format crafting is you know gives them a third prong of attack none of which provides any legal risk so the idea that the res- to look at the reserve list as only about whether we have the whole list or we don't have the whole list, whether cards are on or off it, is reductionist. The other quick point I want to make is that the reserve list is not uniform. It There are some very, very bad cards on that list, and it will never matter whether they get reprinted. They're just dumb and bad. There are some mid-tier cards on that list that are, you know, your Gilded Drakes and what have you, your Treacheries, your... Uh, Academy Rector. Willow Seder. Sure, if you say so. Stuff that is playable, but not necessary, per se, and that would probably be most impacted. They would go through some of those cards that are, you know, marginal in EDH, but get boosted by being reserve lists, would take a hit. They would be, you know, in the same boat as 
Grim Tutor or Imperial Recruiter. Willow Sater. Where if they got reprinted, <laughs> they would get hurt. Whereas, you know, there would be some other cards like Gilded Drake, which that if you printed it at rare in a Vintage Masters set and that set was $10 a pack, which it won't be. We'll get to that in a second. But yeah, the, those a lot of those cards are going, going to crash in the normal set paradigms as we understand them. Then you have things like the Power Nine, where you have... Ex- these legendary extremely powerful cars that are totally broken that should never have been printed and the existing versions of them are not like even if you put you if they printed lotuses in four dollar booster packs and you could just get it as a mythic it would put downward pressure on unlimited copies of the card to some extent i don't know exactly how that would play out that's a pretty tough one to to judge but I feel confident, as I think most people in the industry do, that alpha and beta copies would be just fine. Because they, you know, you have things, you know, Prof made some comparisons about cards that, like, Birds of Paradise or whatever, you know, cards that exist in multiple versions and how them being printed in $5 versions hasn't affected their beta versions. Yeah, that's true. And yep. we all buy into that. Like, you're not going to get any argument from the MTG Finance community, those of us that are informed, that, for instance, Demonic Tutor catching a reprint regularly because it's not on the reserve list does anything but actually reinforce the value of beta and alpha versions of the card you know that that card continues to go up in its rarest versions because every time they print it it reminds some number of players that actually the sexiest version of this card you could get is over here and if you've got six hundred thousand people playing demonic tutor some percentage of them every year are going to decide they want an even better version than say their judge foil version and they're going to go looking for a beta so there is, in, there is, in fact, an argument to be made that is valid from him that by reprinting these cards, you might actually increase the value of some of the reserve list just by drawing attention to it and putting it in the spotlight. So let's leave that on the table over here. Since I know you need to get to bed soon, let me try to run us through in five minutes or less the final takedown of his video that I think needs to be said, which is that any idea that wizards would do this in a way that would actually be accessible to the common magic player is insane utterly ludicrous (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was one of dan's points in response to him was like you want these reserve list cards to be reprinted to increase access to the game but why do you think that they would but and you also make the claim that it won't impact the secondary market prices but the whole point is to make it more accessible so the only way to make it more accessible would be to lower the secondary market prices but we all know that they wouldn't do that anyways it would be an extremely slow drip. i want i want that prof would... to do a follow-up video where he spends the whole video detailing how he would design the set the the product formulation the price point of the set, the various products associated, because none of it, the, the math on of it, on any of that is not going to add up. It's extremely, extremely hard to design a booster box of magic cards that could possibly contain the power nine, given their existing pricing. Because if you make it too cheap, let's say that they keep it in, in print for an entire year and packs are four bucks. The, the long-term value would be so appealing that those cards would be gobbled up so hard. Everybody would be trying to max their allocations 
they would sell out more than any set has ever sold out. The flip, the secondary market flipping would be just insane. And you can say we're going to print to demand all you want, but there is still some limit to what they would like the amount of product they would be willing to push through the system, given how distracting it would be from other formats. For Wizards to hyper-focus on a product, like say to churn out $100 million worth of a Vintage Masters product, when those cards cannot be played for the most part in Commander, cannot be played for the, for the most part in anything but Legacy and or Vintage, and then refocus people on these formats that, again, as you pointed out right up front, don't encourage people to buy new cards once you have the cards for them. That's counter That's counter to Wizards' long-term goals. And part of the reason they don't print new cards to reinvigorate Legacy and Vintage. Because they don't... They want you to play formats that encourage you to be building new decks all the time. <laughs> and it's natural as a player to, to, for instance, want to break on that. I don't want to dip into my wallet every month. I don't want to be on a six-week... Hype, hype cycle for new products I would like to play Legacy and buy my deck once and play it for three to four years and occasionally update it and that's my version of Magic. That's a legit position but expecting Wizards to agree with you is crazy talk. Like they have no reason to, to push you in that direction so for them to put out a really really cheap Vintage Masters that put everybody on that game plan runs counter to everything else they're about and the reality is there's no way they're going to burn the reprint equity of the Power 9 by offering it up in $4 packs. You're also not going to get it in $7 packs. You're not going to get it in $10 packs. You're probably not even going to get it in $100 VIP packs, which people were already outraged by this summer when they were just putting foil box toppers in them. So what is the, what is the actual you... formulation and price point that you could possibly print these cards? Did you read um, Ben... Benny B, Ben Blyweiss's uh, post that he linked us earlier. Oh, I was in the Twitter thread. I don't know if you were. Where his uh, like 10-year rolling exchange program. Yeah. Did you and, ever see that? And I think that he made the whole thing overly complex. It, it was. It did yeah. seem over-engineered. It was amusing. I, I respect the, uh, the thought it, exercise. It ref- Ben's a smart guy. And it reflects... The difficulty in trying yes, to figure out how to that, do it correctly. That he felt the need that as he was thinking it through, he's running into logic problems that are leading him to add complexity to his solution to attempt to run around them. When you get to the point where yeah. you have to work Which, that hard to figure out your product formulation, you've probably your first error was that you were a, a, approaching the project in the first place. The yeah. The, the reality is that for this, the only reasonable formulation I can come up with is something between a $500 and $1,000 booster box where you might get a slim chance at a piece of power and a, and a, and a few dual lands. A slim chance. And even that I, I... might not work when you actually do the math. Off the, off the top of my head, I think if I were Wizards and I repealed the reserve list, I'd just be like, okay, it's gone. We are not making these cards available to you directly. Every single booster pack that we produce from now on has a one in God knows whatever odds of having this a card. 
It could be a plane four dollars and a card booster. It could be a VIP pack for hundred bucks. It could be a Battle Bond two pack. Like they have like a one in zillion chance of having one of these cards. So you can't chase any particular product. It's just in all of them. I I actually lingers. I actually like this idea oh. better than almost anything I've heard. The the premise that we are just going to take Magic Player rewards. And crank it to fucking 11. Like, you are mm. going to get a scratch lottery ticket-esque chance at one of these reserve list cards from here till whenever we decide to stop this program. And in certain situations when we really want you to buy something, like say a VIP pack, maybe you're going to get double the normal chances or whatever. Like, VIP packs are $100 and you're annoyed, but you're going to get an increased drop rate for Lotuses. And it's still only like one in a hundred thousand or something and for some of the other cards like gilded drake maybe it's one in a hundred or one in five hundred or whatever you they, they can just basically break up yeah. the reserve list because it's like four or five hundred cards plus on this or something right a lot it, it, ben talked about it. it's like 542 but if you get down to cards that matter right. so it's if there's like 40, 40 cards that matter then you can set up a relatively easy long-term distribution plan that in theory, boost sales by a high enough value to take the legal risk. And if I was, if I was, you know, bullet to, you know, gun to my head, something like that is probably what I'm going for, as opposed to a vintage master style product that has to be just priced to the moon and doesn't do anything for accessibility. The beauty of your plan is that the people that are out there just buying, you know, random uh, onboarding products like planeswalker decks or you know i'm i'm certain that for the D D set you're going to get class specific decks like a deck for rogue that's rogue theme a deck that's druid themed etc um, the people that are that are playing friday night magic or booster drafting or whatever there's just going to be all these really great pr wins where one person a month or something pulls a lotus worldwide that's a pretty good place to be because you get yeah. you get to ride that wave for a long long time and mm -hmm. yeah i mean if we got to do it i think that's a solid plan yeah um i yeah I, I like the idea of a permanent priceless treasures seems like it adds a little bit of mystery to booster packs which are otherwise not interesting in a lot of cases anymore um but okay we should bring this to a close i think what what really really annoyed me here was just you know you have to remember wizards doesn't want you to play legacy and vintage uh the the claims made in this video are made in a within a breath and then the topic moves on there's a lot of points and this isn't just him right this is everyone who talks about the reserve list a lot a lot of points get made as though it is a already agreed upon premise a foundation to the argument which does not hold up under any yep. level of scrutiny and it's not that james and i have either of us cares that strongly about the reserve list it's just like all of these bombastic claims being made and it's like nobody's stopping and thinking about these and that's what drives us nuts is when you start selling that to people and that's what making a YouTube video like this is doing. You're selling those points to people and it's agitating that it is divorced from intellectual rigor. So here, here, there you go. He, he can do better and he should. He, he has all, he has the support of the, of his users. 
He has a reasonable relationship with wizards, though I, I, apparently they punished him recently by taking away his preview cards for for yeah for his recent really? criticism. But I think Kenobi lost his too. Oh, that, that's topic. a whole the, yeah. he, He's in a position to do better research and come up with better founded arguments that will do more to benefit the community. Because when he makes outlandish arguments like this that are pure clickbaity and not well thought through, he undermines his value to the community long term. Because you just get, there are so many people in our Discord, and, and clearly we're a niche within a niche, and we have a very specific set of viewpoints that just cannot take him cannot take him seriously. We know that. At all. And likewise, we understand that there's people out there that just think MGG Finance are assholes. We're total bullshit. Can't trust anything we say either. But if you're listening and you've been on the fence about this topic, hopefully we've at least given you some point counterpoints to chew on that will be useful to you when you're out there arguing with people on social media. yeah all right let's uh all all good all good um but it is way past my bedtime so james where you guys can find me online uh, on twitter at mdg critic as well as via my constant haunting of the pro trader discord and occasional articles um how about you travis Uh, i am on twitter every day slightly more regretfully so at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. James? One sec. I'm waiting for a page to load. Do you want me to just paste the script in the Twitter? No, no, no. This is just, it's taking forever. It's getting there. I'm just leaving you a nice gap so you can cut it out easily. Okay, here we are. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. We've got some pretty sweet group buys going on on Zendikar Rising Sealed product, and we'll be dealing with some single sales soon, so get on in there and check it all out. Uh, Zero risk, really, because you can sign up for a month, and if you want your money back... And certainly get it okay that is uh that is true <laughs> once again mtg fast finance is proudly sponsored by cool stuff inc where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock including the best in magic the gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles use the promo code finance5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save five percent off your order and support this podcast which brings us to the end of episode 236. Uh, I'm now all wound up. I have to go stand outside in the cold air before I can go to bed. <laughs> but I will be here next week for episode 237. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MDG Fast Finders. <laughs>